when you speak to your customers, um, they start saying things to you like, you know, fashion brands on the other side of the world. Are you guys farming regeneratively? Because um, it's quite a, that's interesting to us. You know, when Vogue magazine comes out with an, an article that says regenerative agriculture can save the world, but what is it? You know, it's it's not only some language that's that we're hearing more and more in farming. We're we're hearing more and more in the consumer world. So, as a marketer, you, you need to join the two together. You know, that's how that's how you earn ideally, you know, great, greater premiums for what you produce. That was Jeff Ross, and you're listening to the Regenerative Journey. From wherever we are, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, recognising their continuing connection to this land, its waterways, the stars in the skies since time immemorial. We pay our respects to the elders, knowledge holders and to all the generations of First Nations peoples who have nurtured their unceded sovereign lands for over 80,000 years and continue to do so today. G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott, an 8th generational Australian regenerative farmer and in this podcast series I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host Charlie Arnott. G'day, welcome back to The Regenerative Journey, and again, before I bang on about how wonderful my next guest is, was, that you'll be listening to in a minute, a couple of things I want to run by you, we will have just, not entirely sure when this has been scheduled, but certainly we would have been into a week or two of our webinar series, our uh, Farming Smarter Not Harder webinar series, it's a regenerative farming mastery workshop, series of workshops you've probably heard lots about, I hope, eight weeks of good stuff, and you can still... You can certainly still uh, get yourself a seat if you still want to get on board because we'll give you the recordings of anything that's already been played, already been uh, run, and then you'll get to sit in personally on the rest of the series and um, grab yourself a farm ticket uh, if you care to on the 13th of October. I'm sure you're hearing enough ads and social media stuff to know all about that, but I'll just sort of plug it again because there are a few seats left. A couple other plugs for our Biodynamics workshops on the 23rd and 24th of, um, of August uh, up at Claremont, we've got our two-day introduction to biodynamics workshop. Get in quick because I'm not sure whether this is actually be put out before or after this this one. Uh, that one's been been um, that workshop, but certainly on the 11th and 12th of September at Levenvale Farm, um, there in Bellingen, then uh, Georgina and Sam, our wonderful hosts there. Uh, that's another two-day, 11th and 12th of September, and then later in that week, 14th and 15th at Summersby um, near Newcastle, we're going to have another two-day introduction to biodynamics workshop. It was awesome news that the um, Festival of Food and Farming uh, put on by Cindy O'Meara and her team up there, Mulaney, has sold out. So that's where we'll be uh, later in September. And at the end of, oh, hang on, is it the end of September? No, end of August. God, the year's just gone flying. Um, and certainly uh, we sh- we'll probably be releasing some more tickets to our farm day. It's on the 13th of October. Just um, keep your ears and eyes open for any release of Tickets to the public. We've been saving them up for our um, our webinar series uh, attendees and, and ticket holders. And if there are any left at the end of that, um, we will be releasing them to the public as well. Who? Else, what else? That's pretty much the plugs for everything at the moment. mRNA is sort of on the. I keep getting sent stuff. Um, and thank you for those who are sending me stuff uh, about you know reports and incidents and things. 
about where that's up to. It seems to be ramping up. I think I'm getting sort of mixed, not mixed messages, but um, some of the the articles that are flying around are a little ambiguous about sort of what's what's being mandated. I'd find it very hard to believe if they were going to mandate the use of mRNA vaccines because I don't know there's any vaccines, even conventional vaccines, that are actually mandated for anything in the in certainly in the cattle and the sheep industry um, necessarily. Um, certainly if you're putting animals into feedlots and things there are, you do have to comply with some of those entry conditions. Uh, but in terms of a grass-fed beef operation, uh, not at the moment, but, you know, who knows, the madness that we experienced in the last few years uh, in the human world of, you know, humans making decisions for other humans and governments and pharmaceuticals and God knows what else, um, I'm not, it's not surprising it's sort of, it's spilling over into the agriculture industry in the form of mRNA vaccines in uh, for cattle and, and so on. So watch this space for any updates there. What else? We've just spent a lot, a bit flu- not flustered, I'm a bit behind the times a bit. We've just spent two weeks in hospital with our little boy, Lordy, um, who had a, a obliterated, is what they called it, um, appendix. Poor little fella. It was pretty touch and go there for a minute. We uh, did a beat, beat a hasty um, trip, one, early one, very early one morning to Sydney a couple of weeks ago. This is a couple of weeks ago from now, so you'll hear this in a couple of weeks' time, I think. So he'll be very much better. He looks like a, as Mum says, uh, he looks like a, a cat's been eating lizards all summer. He's pretty skinny. <laughs> he was on, he's on liquids for a couple of weeks, but he's eating like a horse. Um, he's a champion. I tell you what, what a, it just it it did do lots of things. Appreciation of hospital, you know, and the and the amazing care of the doctors and the nurses in there, incredible, just incredible. Um, so a big shout out to the Randwick Children's Hospital there and Starlight Foundation, Starlight Room. We went up there a few times. They're incredible. So lovely and such a lovely distraction for the kids. Who And then tell you, the other thing that, that was an eye-opener was the um, perspective on illness, you know, <clears throat> pretty touch and go for Lordy, but gee whiz, some of the kids in there, I spoke to a lovely bloke from Tamworth. He'd been there seven weeks at that point, in and on and off, trying to run a business up in Tamworth, a building sort of business. And his daughter, you know, just some very complicated <clears throat> issues and she's only one in a bit and just just really put some perspective around how lucky we are to have the care, how lucky we were that we got Lordy to the hospital in time and how, you know, compared to other challenges that other parents and children are facing, it, was, it wasn't a hell of a lot, to be honest, you know, just in comparison at the time we were spewing. And, and still, it's, it was a pretty serious thing, but, you know, Everything's relative, isn't it? And it just puts some perspective when you chat with others and the challenges they've been going through in the, for months and weeks, and in some cases for years. So very grateful that he's he's back on top of it. Um, that's enough. Now Jeff Ross, Jeffrey, when he's in trouble, Jeff Ross um, at Lake Hawia Station. I interviewed when I was over there a few months ago. Stayed a couple of nights. Such a lovely part of the world. It's about an hour, an hour north. I'm pretty sure it's, I'm right in saying it's north. It may not be due north, it's certainly in the northern direction from Queenstown in the southern island of New Zealand. Beautiful. It's one of four or five stations that actually surround Lake Hawia, which is a beautiful lake. We went up into the high country. Uh, I think we was, I think there's 600 or something metres there, five, six, 700 metres <clears throat> at the lake, and then we went 1,000 metres straight up to the, the sort of the, their um, high country. Uh, Richie, there, the tour guide, took me up there one morning. It was just incredible. Bloody cold, I tell you. Uh, and he, up the top, whilst it was sort of reasonably mild down the bottom, a thousand metres. My God, that'll that'll uh, 
that's pretty fresh up there. And um, had some lovely chats, walk around the farm, and then that evening we sat down. I sat down with, with Jeff. Um, Justine, his wife, amazing couple, their story, you know, not – well, yes, there were touch points with farming in, the, in in certainly in Jeff's previous life, quite a few there. Did full, He's doing full circle and getting right back into farming now um, in a different kind of way. Uh, the other guys there, Jack, um, the farm manager, lovely bloke, met him and Justine, their um, other assistant there, and I hope I haven't forgotten anyone else, but just a, just a beautiful, beautiful couple of days there. Um, it was paradise, it really was. And those guys are, were voted in sort of the top 100 places in the world from Condé Nast last year or maybe early this year. Um, quite a feat and well-deserved too because it's just a, a stunning, stunning part of the world if you're ever in New Zealand. My first trip there actually, so... Pretty exciting. Anyway, good chats with Jeff. Uh, we sat there and um, and <laughs> had a good old had a good old chin wag. And this is Jeff Jeff Ross Jeffrey when he's in trouble. Ross at Lake Harrier Station in New Zealand on the regenerative journey. Jeff, we're on. Jeff Jeffrey is you Jeffrey? Are you gonna do you get Jeff, Jeffrey? Uh, just from my mum. Yeah. When you've been naughty, yeah. <laughs> well, Jeffrey Ross, no, you haven't been naughty. You had a lovely day, Jeff. Um, welcome to the regenerative journey. Welcome to the um, the old uh, airstrip house. That's it. Yep. What, what's your, what are you shorting that to? Tosh, Tosh. Yeah, Tosh. the old airstrip house. Yeah. And we're on the lakes of um, we're on the lakes. We're on the shores of Lake Hawaii. Uh, I keep yep. stumbling. Hawaii. Yep. yep. Um, here at ha- uh, Lake Hawaii Station. And I have been blessed to have had a camp here last night and, and we'll do again tonight. Um, just come back a bit there. And, um, uh, and you've been not blessed, you've been stuck with the chore of talking to me or answering questions from me for the next little while. But it's, I've got to say, it's such a lovely thing to be doing, speaking with you, having spent the morning with yourself and, and a little bit of time with Justine, your wife, and, um, and Richie. Yep. Your guide here, an amazing part of the world, and I say world, not just amazing part of New Zealand. It is world-class and amazing. What is it? So welcome. Thank you, Charlie. <laughs> what a, yeah, brilliant to be be having a yarn with you. Yeah. Well, we've got lots to chat about. Um, the Before we do, I just want you, we're just sitting here for the viewers. I'm, I'm always getting nervous about moving the camera. Um but I'm going to do it this time because it's okay. so worth the view. That is what we're looking at. It's a bit misty. The, the weather's come in, but you should be able to sort of see there's the foreshore and the lake just goes on forever. Um, how big is it? The lake, it's, it's the ninth biggest lake in New Zealand. We, well, if we could see today, we'd be looking at about a third of it. So yeah. I think its length is around... I want to say about 25 k's long. Really? Yeah, it goes up up around the corner out of sight there for like two times further than, than what we're looking at. Wow. And we, and, and, and um, uh, I had the, again, had the pleasure of a tour with yourself and Richie this morning. Richie took me up to the high country. Yeah. Which was just ridiculous. And, um, and we had a bit of a poke on the foreshore and your farming paddocks down here. You said that there there's only there's four stations that sort of, on the lake, on yeah, the lake. this lake is just four stations, two on one side, two on the other. It's incredible. So what is it for you, Jeff, to be sitting here looking down across what we can see of the lake <laughs> in this in this um, amazing – let's start here actually because 
just to set the scene of where we're sitting in, for those who are viewing on YouTube or something, you can see the wall behind us in a, in a mirror, so you're not getting the full thing, but um, the full show. But you were listed, or this, this, this wee little cabin here was listed recently on something pretty special. Yeah, so Condé Nast Traveller, one of the world's most prestigious travel magazines, uh, listed the, this um, farm, the station, as... Um, the only place to stay actually on their, uh, in New Zealand on their gold list and one of only four properties worldwide on their environmental gold list. So th- I think that was a um, really interesting signal that not only, and we'll talk about farming, not, not only where farming is going but tourism is going in quite a very similar direction actually. People want genuine, authentic um, experiences that are, um, are good, good for the planet. Well, I guess it's a combination of farm experience, environmental experience. You know, the gateway is probably the environment sort of stuff, isn't it? It's like, oh, we, you know, we want to get out in nature, but then they go, well, I can actually go to a farm, yeah. a working farm. Yeah, and it's surprising. We thought the two would be quite separate. You know, I, I approached um, this probably because we really wanted to get into farming. I was really keen on that. My wife, uh, Jussie, was probably a little more keener on the tourism, so we thought they're kind of two separate business businesses. But what's actually hap- happened is most of the tourists are actually really interested in farming, mm. which has surprised us. They they want to know what's going on with the stock, why why the multi-species pastures, what's going on with carbon, what's going on with biodiversity, all those things are becoming quite important. And we're sitting here with – there's a your paddock in front. We, we, that's your paddock here, yep. isn't it? The old air, that, with the old airstrip the, used to go just yeah, right beside right us. right beside us. So the, the, the top dressing planes would land, go uphill – Fill up with fertilizer at the top of the paddock and then take off as fast as they can. It's pretty short. Yeah, try and get airborne before <laughs> they hit the lake. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few trees down there that may not have been there um, yeah. all those years ago, yeah. <laughs> I imagine. So, um, and so people can stay here and like there would be times yeah. when there are sheep in that paddock. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Surrounded by it, yeah. And so, what does it mean for you, Jeff, to be sitting here in this, um, I don't know if it's an award, but a but a, but a highly you know, internationally recognised, um, you know, stay, place to stay, looking across that beautiful lake. I mean, if you – did you – 10 years ago, did you think you'd be doing this? No, not at all. No, 10 years ago, we didn't think we'd be farming. Five years ago, we thought we'd love to live on a farm and love to live in this part of the world, but we'll kind of keep uh, – have the farming with somebody else. Um, but, you know, uh, five years on from that point, we're, we're, we're you know um, – Deep into it, um, on, on where, as my wife often says, we're we're in the weeds, literally, uh, with uh, with the property here, which which after a hell of a lot of hard work is we're starting to get to that point where we feel like we're enjoying it now. And so you are. Um, there's been it's been five years of. We'll get to sort of more of the detail, but there's been five years of activity, action, building, all sorts of sort of stuff. Do you, yeah. you, it's been pretty pretty full on five years. It's been. Busy. When you buy, you know, often we all do this. Well, I've certainly done it. You buy a property and you kind of have quite rose-tinted glasses on. You know, you drive up the driveway and think, I reckon we can get this uh, property, you know, in, into a shape that we're proud of in, you know, one or two years with um, this type of budget. Five years later and a much bigger budget, <laughs> I think we're, we're getting close, <laughs> hopefully. Um, and then to be here uh, today... Not five or ten years ago, but today, looking at that, like what sort of, what does that conjure up in you? 
Well, this um, this house here, which is the house um, for accommodation and, and tourism, this is actually one of my favourite views of the lake because when we first got here and you look down the lake, it's a little harder to see right now, there's a lot of terraces, you know, flat sloping terraces that come down to the lake edge that were f- full of um, noxious weeds when we got here and all the stock were in the lake, the stock were on the road um, and um, we just did a drive down there today and it's probably, you know, it's one... Some of the some days on a farm, you work you know work your guts out, and at the end of the day, you don't feel you've got a lot to show for it. But mm. but after five years, when we look down onto that lakefront, it feels like we've got a, you know finally got quite a lot to show for it. So it's quite a rewarding place uh, place to sit here, actually, and look at those flats and know that we've um, got our regenerative pastures going there. We've got all the waterways fenced off, um, and we've got some pretty fat, happy stock sitting down there. Well, as we went down there, do we go past that point there? There's a big tree on that point. Did uh, we go no, that far? No, we didn't. Not quite. Go, no, that's kind of the boundary, actually. Yeah, where yeah. We just stopped short of that. And so um, you have pastures, multi-species pastures, and one side of the road was, I guess, a traditional and original yep. pastures, and the, and the other side, and you were sort of saying, oh, it's got lots of weeds. <clears throat> Understandably, there were you know things that you might want to call weeds, but what struck me was was the diversity and the vibrancy of what was going on there. Remember, there was one paddock that had... I think it had been back into you know um, annual, uh, perennial pastures. It had probably been multi-species pasture cropped a couple of times, and yeah. and you weren't sure about it. And, and there was clearly, you know, broadleaf um, plants in there. There was you know those you know legumes. And look over the other side of the road, it was it was virtually a monoculture. Yeah, yeah. So we are cycling through. We're trying to do about 70, 80 hectares of new regenerative pastures mm-hmm. per year. So we're you know we're cycling through and slowly. Um, but surely converting the farm all to multi-species pastures. But it was amazing um, that we we have the opportunity to see those contrasts between multi-species and um, and monoculture. And whilst we didn't take a spade with us, we we should have actually. But we did pull up a few plants, mm-hmm. and, and I suspect um, what we saw that diversity that we saw above the ground, we would have seen below the ground as well. Well, we and disturbed a few worms. We did, and <laughs> I can tell you when, and you'll meet Jono in another day or two, when Jono first came here on some of his visits, we, we struggled to find a worm, you know. With, Is that right? Yeah. yeah Jono so, through. Yeah. Um, well, there were certainly some there that were, well, I don't know, can you tell a happy worm from a cranky worm? It was big and fat to me, so I'm calling them happy. <laughs> Excuse me, they were. Um, do your do your neighbours think you're a bit weird? Um, <laughs> you don't. Ha- you probably, don't have to name any of them. Probably, but not for, not for the we, how we're farming. Um, look, um, I think initially, but um, that there's um, good levels of curiosity, and uh, we've had a lot of discussion groups here. I don't yeah. know if you have discussion groups in Australia. Very, very yeah, variations on that. Yeah, yeah, like farmer days, and yeah, you know, so we've had a lot of farmer days. We've got another one coming up. Soon we had we had one yesterday with thirty or forty people here, yeah. and um, who who organised them? You do or is there, um, is there different, a group? Different catchment groups or oh, catchment yeah, groups? They'll, yeah, they'll ring up and say, "Hey, you know, we, we get together once a month. We want to come and do a visit to your place this month." Great, yeah, yeah. yeah so so, that, so that, that happens. Yeah, <clears throat> and they're also and they come here and heckle you, or they they're all very supportive. Mostly pretty supportive. <clears throat> Um, at least when they visit, yeah. <laughs> but, well, you're probably putting on a good feed and a yeah, good time, so yeah. of, course, of course they are. 
And so, the, 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 you know, uh, we had that sort of farmer discussion around our front paddocks and weeds in the front paddock and, you know, wanting to top them and make them clean, clean and tidy. Yeah. Is that, that sort of – and even though you, you're not a – and we'll get to your, your regenerative journey, but you're not um, – uh, you haven't a career in farming, let's put it that way. You haven't spent your life on a farm, however, as, as far as I understand, but you still appreciate sort of the um, – the pressures on a farmer to have the front paddocks clean. Yeah. You, you're struggling, you, you're still, struggling with that? I still am, I think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I grew, I grew up on a farm but left farm um, for the big city probably, you know, when, after I went to university. And, um, and you know, looking at our neighbouring farms where I grew up, you know, I was always of the view that those paddocks needed to be clean and, you know, no weeds. And that, that was kind of... Um, ingrained in me and then probably when I went to university you know weeds were um, the absence of weeds was a signal that you had a really competent farmer and so um, it, it's it's hard to kind of reconcile that with what we saw this morning when I pulled out a big old hairy uh, nightshade um, <laughs> wanting to get rid of the thing but underneath it was um, a whole heap of worms and you know beautiful root structure with all you know that soil was very um uh, easy to to pull apart and oh, there's a beautiful. lot of life in there. Yeah. So you yeah, you appreciate that, and it's interesting, isn't it, that it's more of a social thing. Like having a clean paddock has its upsides, but from a production point of view, or a you know a, like infrastructure point of view, or a, or a finance point of view, it doesn't always make sense. No, it doesn't. And as we talked about, I think last night with Jack, our farm manager, often you know we disturb the soil, and um, the first thing that will grow is a lot of weeds. You know, those seeds are somewhere in the Seed, seed bank there um, but after about two to three years you know with good grazing and good um, you know other other you know, diverse seeds going in there they just kind of fade away into the background you know so they're probably doing a little bit of a pioneering job getting some cover getting getting some root structure into the soil getting some pathways into the soil but but then they kind of they they've done their thing and um, and the good stuff that you want to see starts uh, starts kind of winning the day. Well, they're sort of made redundant, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. It's like they've, they've, done the, they've done the job. Yeah. Time to go. Succession has taken place. Yeah. Um, and, uh, oh, God, I had a question. Another question. Oh, yeah, back to your comment about at uni, um, that no weeds, and I'm not disputing it, but it's interesting that, you know, and I guess in a conventional farming um, world, that's probably a fair statement if, you know, we, no weeds on a farm or few weeds is, is a is a sign of a competent farmer. Yeah. It's, yeah, you, I mean, that challenges me. I yeah. mean, not, not from my conventional farming background. That's, that, that's about right because you just don't want those yeah. weeds, do you? Yeah. Because then you, people would think you can't farm. Yeah. And uh, we have, a, we have a, a, an attitude of they're robbing moisture, they're robbing nutrients. Yeah. They're crowding it out. They're competing. Yeah, not palatable for stock, yep. which is not always true, but a lot of, a lot of them aren't palatable to stock, yeah. Yeah, no, I, th- I think at university, you taught it as a boy on the farm, but you taught it at university. When you look out, and it's quite prevalent in cropping, you know, if you look out you've, at, at uh, a new new paddock you've put in or a new crop you've put in, that you get a good strike. Um, but if a bunch of weeds start showing up, you know, it's a real kind of... Um, dent in your in your pride you know what have I done wrong there you know did I not get the spray mix right or you know then you start 
asking a whole lot of questions about chemicals and things like that, which is not necessarily the right questions to be asking. <laughs> how, how, well, do I need to go and put the spray boom over it yet again? Start, start again. Yeah. Yeah, I hope my neighbours don't see it. Um, let's go back to um, – well, I'm sure we'll get back to weeds and cropping and, and, and farming, but let's go back to the beginning, Jeff, when – when you don't have to give us the year of your birth, but what what was, where did you appear on the, on the planet? Um, I, I appeared in the very late sixties. So during the seventies and eighties, we grew up in South Auckland, the other end of New Zealand, and my dad was on, on a dairy farm, and uh, then my dad was quite early into deer farming in New Zealand. And he, he was quite an entrepreneur, actually. He was into cropping as well. We grew squash. We were actually the largest sweet corn grower in. I was told the Southern Hemisphere for a while, so we supplied a lot of the supermarkets sweet with corn. Uh, sweet corn. Yeah, right. All all hand picked. We're up every morning at you know four thirty, picking corn to with a whole host of others to to get it to the supermarket because we're about an hour south of Auckland. Um, yeah, right. And a conventional farm. Yeah, very conventional. Yeah. yeah. Although um, looking back down now, Dad was quite um, when we bought a deer farm. It was rough hill country. And we broke it in. Dad was quite um, deliberate in protecting a lot of the native bush and good stands of regenerative native bush. Um, so he was perhaps um, unwittingly, you know, quite a protector of biodiversity at, at that time. Uh, we planted a lot of trees on that farm, planted a lot of shelter belts um, for, for stock shelter, but they were adding a lot to diversity. But I think, I think what kind of I got really interested in at that time, a lot of deer farms started spring up around the country. Um, for some reason, deer farms um, seemed to think they had this licence. They could call themselves parks. So there was this forest park deer farm or, you know, and they had these quite park-like names. And, um, and most <laughs> of them... stick the word park in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, many Fair of enough. them were beautiful, especially the stud deer farms. And so I got quite... Um, and we... Dad bought a rough bit of hill country and... You know, with a tractor and a chainsaw, we worked really hard, um, our family, to turn it into um, a, a beautiful-looking deer farm. So that that's, that's um, stuck with me. The reward of that stuck with me. So then we went to the city, you know, we're in consumer brands for almost 30 years, but it was that kind of process of turning rough land into beautiful park-like land that, that kind of never left, and that's what we wanted to get back to at some stage. And so other family members, um, uh, brothers, sisters... Brother, one sister, one brother. Yeah. yeah. Um, where you? Where were you in the picking order? Right in the middle. You're in the middle. Yeah. You're in the middle child syndrome. Mm. You get a bit of that. <laughs> there's a there's a there's a real thing. I've got cut some cousins who have yeah because they're sort of they're not the first child who sort of is often the um, the experiment, but yeah. but <clears throat> because it's the first if it's the first child and and but but is but often is the sort of ends up being a bit of a leader and you know. Um, quite courageous because they've got no siblings to sort of go back to. Yeah. The last child of the three, generally, so I'm generalising here, yep. is kind of the one that gets gets spoiled because there's two other kids to look after them. Mum and dad are so exhausted by that stage, like just do whatever you bloody want to do. Right. And the middle child is the one that's sort of in the in the middle where it doesn't get the attention because you're the second one. Right. And the third one's a cute little. Right, cuddly, you know, so the middle one kind of misses, is, out, a misses out a bit, yeah. Right. In some way, I'm not saying that's your, that 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 <laughs> relates to you, but it's a I, I, it keeps coming up quite often yeah. um, when I talk to talk to middle children, Jeff. 
I hope it hasn't set you off. Well, I don't, I don't think so. It's, it's, not, it's not triggering yet. Yeah. <laughs> good, good. I could have just made all that up. Too. You could have, yeah. No. Um, so middle child, yeah, cool. Yep. And then they also, <clears throat> the farming, were they you know, as in, involved as you were? Mm. Um, I think they were involved on the farm in our childhood, yeah, but neither of them have um, gone back to farming, although my dad... My dad, he's he's still he's eighty two. He continues to farm in a way. He's growing vanilla in Tonga. Um, he was yeah, asked, he yeah, he was wow. asked to. He did a lot of charity work in Tonga after cyclones and things, rebuilding schools, and th- th- a lot of people knew he loved his agriculture. And so they said, "What what can we grow up here?" And he had a look around. And he said, "I think you should grow vanilla." So um, he helped the, a lot of vanilla pan- plantations get started, and then to a point where he started his own. And my sister. Then started a, a vanilla vanilla business, you know, creating essences and pastes and baking products from Tongan vanilla. Based there or based uh, here, but ba- sort of bringing it in. Yeah, brings here. Yeah, that's so awesome. So my dad, my dad, um, um, ups to, uh, much to mum's kind of um, uh, kind of questioning um, is my dad's in Tonga a lot. Yeah, he loves it up there. He's work, he's working in the plantation right now. He'll be up at four thirty in the morning before it gets too hot, working on his vanilla. Eighty-two. And so he's active in the pa- in the paddock yeah, in the very, fields. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's incredible. Very active. Is yeah. that does that inspire you somewhat? Yeah, it does. Yeah, he he loves it down here as well. He he'll come down here and he'll go straight to work. He'll, we'll go building or fencing. Or, he, he's contributed a lot here. Is that some? Is that because is he scared that if he stops that that I mean he probably wasn't even consider stopping. No, oh, I don't think he does consider stopping. I think. He he's just uh, one of those people. He doesn't. Um, if he was here for half an hour, even though it's pouring with rain outside, after half an hour he'd get he'd get bored. He said, "Right, what can we do? Let's go and build something. Let's fix something. I've seen a gate that's not swinging properly. Let's go fix that." Does that drive people nuts? I think it might drive nut, mum nuts. Yeah, but <laughs> that's very it's a benefit here. It's very, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> did you do you say, Dad? I need some gate swing. Can you come and help me? Or do you just, or do you just drive past all the gates and they swing and he just yeah, sees them and then see it. Yeah, makes a mental note. Yeah, <laughs> classic. Um, and so you said that that sort of set you up. I mean, I guess now I understand your father's kind of. Um, Behaviour, for want of a better word, he that no no wonder you, um, I guess, have taken on what you are doing now with such gusto. Yeah, maybe I think all our family was quite entrepreneurial, um, and we didn't come here to take it on with such gusto. In fact, me and my wife shook hands at the gate not long after we bought it, saying, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna go slow on this one." You know, we've been working pretty hard for the last thirty years. We're just gonna enjoy it, um, not try and transform the place. You know, by next week. Um, but I think about five minutes after shaking hands, we we seem to have broken that um, <laughs> commitment and dive straight into it. Let's dive straight back into so farming, um, lots of activity, um, deer. Um, and then you said earlier that you finished up. Would you went to university? Was yep. that sort of when you left the farm? Yeah, I went to university though to be a farmer. I did a BCom in agriculture. Yeah, cool. So at a at a kind of an agricultural based university, did a year's practical as part of that degree. Milked milk cows for a year, which is 
uh, was enough to make me decide I didn't want to be a dairy farmer. <laughs> where, um, uh, where was the uni? Which uni? Uh, Lincoln in the South Island near Christchurch. Right, okay. Yeah, yep. yeah it was a great time. But it was uh, one of my papers was a marketing paper, and in the last week of university we did a field trip to an advertising agency, and um, I, was, I was quite interested in it and taken by what she was um, discussing in the, in the field trip, this woman who, who took us around the agency. And um, when faced with the prospect, you know, that was back in, uh, when was that, early 90s, um, of going back to a farm, getting one weekend off a month, earning pretty small amounts of money, or working for an advertising agency, get, getting all weekends off and getting paid almost double, what I would on the farm, I thought, why don't I just do advertising for two or three years, then I'll come back to farming. Um, but, you know, 30 years later, kind of finally got back to it. Did, did, you have to, did you have a conversation with Dad about, about that? You know, was he saying, right, can't wait for you to finish and come back to the farm? And then- no, he was actually, he was actually the, the reverse. He, he didn't encourage any of us to, to come farming. He said, you know, there's plenty of other opportunities out there. Mm. Um, yeah, he was pretty broad-minded, actually. And so um, that, that was an easy... It was an easy thing. And uh, mum and dad sold the family farm, and at the time neither my brother, sister or I could afford to, to buy it, so so we didn't. Um, but, you know, now, uh, you know, and I went, was back there the other day, you know, my primary school mates, some of them still live in that, that area. Um, you know, it's a beautiful, beautiful farming area. It, pro- it, it might have been nice to keep it in the country, but, you know, we just weren't, uh, in the family rather, um, we just weren't able to at that time. Um. So the bright lights of the city in advertising took you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we're in. My wife and I were both in advertising um, for about twelve years. And how did you? Did, was she at the same agency? No, was she was she? at. A, we're often competing against each other, which wasn't always easy. You were often pitching for the same business. So, so even when you were a couple, yeah, you were still yeah right. Competing. How did you meet? Uh, at high, I met at high school, actually. Oh, okay. Right. Mm. Yeah. So before you went advertising and went to uni? Yeah, you, she, yeah. by good fortune, she did a different degree at Canterbury University, so we're, like, nearby, during varsity. And then you ended up working at competing agencies. How, yeah. did, that, how did the bosses of those agencies think about that? Go, uh, bloody, he's got as a trader or a... There's a mole, you know, inside in, inside yeah, trading. Oh, we did get a bit of heat on it from time to time. Actually, we got we got. I remember being sat down and saying, "Any of this leaks, and you're you know you're going to lose your job." <laughs> um, so, so um, yeah, but we I don't know. We managed to kind of navigate it. And then, um, uh, so how was how was that? You know, well, what skills did you bring across to the advertising world that you learned as a as a as a farmer? As a farmer, good question. Look, probably not any specific skills. I think I think um, you know my wife and I did relatively well in advertising in different roles. I think you know just be, be, because of um, you know similar skills that are relevant to both business and farming. You know, like good listening, good curiosity, um, sometimes a bit of intuition, a bit of risk taking at times. Yeah, I'm just jotting down a couple of things here. Yeah, some of, some of those are possibly relevant to both, you know, any any form of business. I guess. And Justine, she farming background. Her mum and dad were both from farms, but she she grew up in the city. But her mum came off a, far, a dairy farm. Her dad was off an orchard, horticulture. Yeah, right. So she had 
some touch points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her grandparents were still on the family farm and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And so, tell me, what's what's the? Um, I mean, you see shows like Mad Men, and I don't know those. What are those shows? We used to have one in Australia yeah. called um, with um, Will Will um, uh, Anderson, and um, and it was a, it was all about ads, and they'd analyse ads. I just can't think. Of oh that. yeah, yeah, I remember that. You um, might have had it over here too. Yeah, I think it did. <clears> I mean, that's like a taste of advertising, yeah. you know. Yeah, it was. Look, in the nineties, it was fantastic. A huge amount of smart people. I learned a hell of a lot off some really clever people. Um, it was a lot of fun. Good young person's game. You work really hard. You play hard. Um, but after after a while, you realise that you're working really hard um, to create what um, should be some pretty strong ideas. But the real people making kind of or getting all the rewards are, are actually the owners of the brands. You know, it's not the ad agency that get paid on an hourly basis. It's the it's the brands themselves. So. After about twelve years, it got to a point where we kind of the itch was starting to occur. Where, what if, what if you know, if we believed in the power of communication and strong ideas, rather than kind of selling them to others, maybe we should apply them to our own brand. So we we started uh, our you know our own brand in the late nineties, a New Zealand vodka brand, and then we started investing in other brands as well. So why vodka? What was the what was the thing there? Was it was that a like critical analysis of an industry, and or was like, oh, I like that stuff. Probably a little more like I like that stuff, but there's a, a few other observations. One is we were young, you know, pre kids in Wellington. A lot of our friends owned cocktail bars. We could see the renaissance of cocktails at the time, um, and the kind of the key ingredient in cocktails then, at least, was vodka. Mm. And and I went to um, the US on a working with New Zealand tourism, and I witnessed some um, research groups. And one in one of the research groups, someone said, "New Zealand, oh yeah, it's kind of like the Sweden of the South Pacific." And then I thought, <laughs> "Hang on, hang on, hang on." Um, and then I started thinking about. Oh, then I saw an ad for an American vodka on on the airline plane flying home, oh. and I thought, well, "That's weird. Vodka doesn't come from America. Bourbon comes from America. Vodka needs to come from cool, pristine environments like oh yeah, like Sweden. Oh, oh, oh you know, where Absolute comes from, or like." New Zealand, and that's so that was as about as simple as it was, really. And it started from there, it was pretty naive, um, kind of due diligence. But, um, once you start these things, you kind of get to a point where you can't stop and you, you fully you have to make it work. So it was a bit like that. I'm just going to turn the light on behind us there, yep, because I reckon it's a light phase. We're going to need a bit more, okay? It was just here, right? Um, yeah. No. Well, oh, yeah. What's up here? Pretty sure. <clears throat> uh, okay. No. I be oh, closer. Oh. Maybe. Maybe probably the one I didn't press. I mean. Oh, we go. Well done. So um, did that? What did that? So what does that look like? You go, okay, you've got the idea. You've got. I'm gonna. We're gonna. You know, we can see there's a market for vodka. It's a growing industry. Yeah. Um, bit of a demand for it. Um, what, what was the next step? Like, there's the idea. There's, um, there's the idea, but then what do you do? Yeah. You then, go and then, you got to make uh, the stuff. Uh, you got to find a heap of potatoes. Yeah. Jesse's grandfather was doing a bit of home distilling, so that was quite oh, useful. Really? Made some inquiries about you know where to find a still. Um, she found still got that started making vodka started buying bottles started designing bottles 
um, started making really bad vodka. So, so I'm just going to wire up there yep. just to give a bit more, it's more right. herbs there. Yeah, and um, yeah, look, we we made a bit of vodka and it, it wasn't good enough taste-wise. So met up with a chemistry teacher from a high school who was a bit of a part-time <laughs> distiller. What's well, someone you knew from high school? No, I just I, – um, no, it wasn't from my high school. It was in Wellington at the time, so I'm not sure how I found him actually. And he was making vodka at home, had a better still than I did, so he was – Making it, and then you're happy to admit that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So up to that point, I'm just, I'm, I'm fascinated. So up to that point, it was a bit of a garage job. Yeah, it was always intended, though. We, we're trying to get to a point where we'd sell bottles and yeah, um, and started selling them to a few mates who are owning cocktail bars. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what was in the name? Did you, Forty-two you, below was called. So it, it's, it was that from the start then. Yeah, you it was always that from the start, which yeah. came from. We're living in Wellington, which is on the 42nd parallel, so yeah. 42 degrees below the equator, so that's where the, the name came from. So a couple of mates took it on? Yep. And then a few more, then we moved back to Auckland. I kept kind of pushing it around bars, and it got to a point where I was still working in advertising, got to a point we couldn't do both, you know. It was growing? It was growing, but it was like a lot of growth businesses. It was had a lot of headaches, sucking a lot of capital. You know, we'd, we'd written more checks out than we, we kind of should have, and it got to a point where, look, we're gonna we're gonna have to make this work. So fortunately, took on a bit of investment, and um, not only was the investor, you, you know, helpful with capital, he was bloody helpful with a bunch of complementary skills, business, yeah, business skills. Yeah. Yeah. So he he was brilliant. He, you know, I was from the advertising side of things. He under had a solid understanding of finance, sales. So it was a good mix, and that's a great yeah. mix. Yeah. And what about um, you were so. You were an interesting thing. You were working at competing agencies, yourself and Justine. Now you're working together as a as a as a as a couple. Yeah. How did that yeah. all? Did, was, did that work well? Did you, did you um, bring Did you bring your best selves to the table every day? You better talk to Justine. About that <laughs> oh no, I will. Don't yeah. worry. Um, yeah. Look. Yeah, and the most part, I think we did. You know, and that's when we're starting a family as well. So it was pretty full on. You know, and we kind of. Had clear roles, but you know, Jussie was always there helping out on on the business side, even though she was um, raising two small children. Um, and you know, I, I was doing a lot of travel at the time as well. So for the vodka, for the vodka, yeah. yeah right. over what does that look like? You you going to taking bottles to bars and going try this? Pretty much. Do you give yeah. bottle, Do you give? I know I'm getting pretty granular, but I'm fascinated. Do you give bottles away? Is that is that how you? Yeah, sometimes. So that gets too. It gets very expensive. Yeah. Yeah. So look, I I travel to Australia. I can tell you, I did a lot of laps of Oxford Street, um, a lot of trips to Melbourne, literally cold calling bars with a bottle of vodka. And it went bars don't open until late in the afternoon. No, that's the that's the challenge, right? So you, you're working during the day, you know, working with distributors, production, all those types of mm-hmm. things, and then you'd hit the sweet spot is kind of from four pm till till nine or ten pm. You know, the, you go do the bars and restaurants, and then you go into the clubs and get the clubs as they're opening up. But then they get to a point where it's, too busy, guests start arriving. Yeah, they don't want you. They don't want you hucking yeah. your. So when you yeah. turn up with a box or a bag full of vodka, yeah, like that's that's. Um, I guess that would happen often. Would that happen often to them? Would that get people yeah, hucking? Yeah, it does actually. You're competing, but and you you know you're competing with some big companies. And unknown, you're an unknown brand. Complete I guess that's unknown, largely. Do they have yeah. a Do they have a suck on it then and go? That's all right. Yeah, we do. You know what we? You'd have to have a shot with them. Yeah. Yeah, often. <laughs> or we do a little um, blind taste test. You know, if people are particularly dismissive, you would say, 
what's your best vodka? You know, and they'd, they'd name, name a brand and said, okay, put a bottle down. We're gonna, I'm going to have a shot of that, a shot mm. of ours, and a shot of another one. I'm going to mix them up, and you blind taste test now and tell me your favourite vodka. And fortunately, we'd often, we'd often win in a scenario like that. Is that right? That's, yeah. that's a great idea. Yeah. And then they go, that's all right, give me five or whatever. Yeah, give me, give me two. So we'd get the distributor usually to do that, that side of things. Yeah, the, the, yeah. the distributor yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah. Wow, so it grew. <clears throat> you were travelling. You were, you were, you know, levelling off with bar owners all over the country. Yeah. Um, then we listed it. It became publicly listed here in New Zealand, which we listed when we were super young and small. So you, you had a fair distribution at yeah, that point then? Yeah, you, you had confidence. We, I don't know if we had confidence. We had probably nerve, actually. You know, just um, and some belief. Yeah, we had confidence and belief. Yeah, and then we just with that capital, we just really started um, putting our foot down on growth. You know, Australia, the US, uh, UK, um, knocking off, or not? I wouldn't say we ever knocked off those markets, but we we started getting a decent presence in them. And does that require? You said your other business partner or the person who supplies in capital earlier was 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 getting, I guess, business advice. As a business grows, <clears throat> do you need to find better advice? Like, does you know, did you find that your your core people were good enough to get you all the way through, or were you going? Did we actually need better advice or better? I guess more money is a thing, and yeah. cash flows going. I, and I think typically most businesses do experience that. They need you know different levels of advice as they grow. I think bloody fortunate for me, the you know, the chap Grant who invested and and his business partner Steve, they they had a pretty um, you know, big depth of of skills. Um, and so and ambition, you know. So we, we all grew together pretty quickly. So listed in New Zealand and yep. then yeah. And then we, we grew super fast and three years later we got an offer from Bacardi and um, it was just pre-GFC, um, you know, we didn't see the GFC coming. Vodka values were, were high, so we were publicly so was listed. was that 98? That was, um, no, uh, was 2000. No, oh, sorry, I've got the wrong decade. Yeah, 2006, to early 2007. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think the GFC was 08, so 09. Oh, I just yeah. prior to that, so yeah. it was pretty heady days. It was heady days. Um, had an offer, had to present it to shareholders because we were public. Yeah. And... and um, Grant, particularly my business partner, he say, he, you know, he's uh, he was saying yeah, it's a pretty good offer. We've got to consider it. So yeah. we did. And I think it was the, it was the right thing to do. So that's how many years ago is that now? Yeah, it's getting what was it? Oh, so that's we'll ten. Seven. Yeah, oh seven. That's seventeen. That's ten plus five. Yeah, fifteen. Sixteen years. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. right. And mm-hmm. so that. Um, you weren't in, you were full time doing that, yep. not advertising. No, I mean I guess that's the that's the wonderful thing. Getting back to the combination of um, you your advertising skills. I mean that's as you said, what a great yeah. motivator to say. Why am I? And that, this is interesting. It's a story I hear a lot. Is people working for someone else? They're getting all the kudos, and they're going. I guess it's not an uncommon thing that people that are entrepreneurial will step in and go. Well, I want to make my money. I'm using my yeah. skills in my business. Yeah, it was that. There's also a bit of frustration. Like, um, I work with some really some of New Zealand's be- best creative people, and I, I saw examples of great ideas going through to be made into, let's say, a TV ad, and benefiting that business in a huge way. And but I also saw examples of a great idea scripted up. Here's an idea which I totally believed in, 
but for whatever reason, the client would reject it. They'd reject it because, you know, they didn't like it. It might be internal political reasons, you know, host of things. And I started getting quite frustrated with that. Because so you're going, that's bloody good. That's going to change your business, mate. Um, and they disagreed. So I thought, look, I could stay here and get bitter about situations like this. Or, you know, if I really believed in my views, I should kind of apply that type of thinking to, to our own business. And you did. Yeah, yeah. So the sale of in 20... Uh, 208, 207 rather. <clears throat> yeah, late 206. And then you, what happened then? And then me, Grant, and Steve decided, hey, that went quite well. Why don't we um, Why don't we invest in other people's uh, business where young founders do all the work and we kind of put our feet up on the desk and uh, just pass on some of the learnings and a bit of capital from what we just generated. So we did start investing in businesses, but um, I guess much like uh, what we've experienced here on the farm, the feet didn't stay on the desk too long and, you know, you end up kind of working as hard as you have. Yeah, so we invested in some skincare business, a fragrance business out of Australia called Akoya. Um, and um, look, a, re- a real interesting array actually, um, a craft beer and also a... Um, Which craft beer? It was called Moa or Moa. It has got M M O A. It's after, named oh, after New Zealand's largest yeah. flightless bird. Yeah. yeah. So that was based here then. Yeah, based in New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, is it still going? It is still going. Yeah. 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 We it, look probably of all the things we invested in, it was probably the least rewarding. You know, something I put a lot of time into, but it probably didn't fire as big as in as in a bigger way as I'd hoped um, for a number of reasons. One of the reasons was when we first went into craft beer, we thought brilliant. You know, people are getting into more. You know, drinking quality, not quantity, and better taste profile, all those types of things. But I think we we came to that conclusion about the same time as five hundred other people did. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> it was really that would have been about it, wouldn't it? It was probably the the late, well, probably the early twenty um, tens, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. When, exactly. Yeah, when well, it was. Yeah, I think we invested in twelve oh oh twelve yeah. around there. Yeah, yeah, and there's three or four craft beers starting to bubble away, and then you know five years later there's Every yeah, everyone's doing yeah, yeah, yeah. an IPA. I still don't know yeah. what an IPA is. Um, it's uh, it's either an imperial um, pale ale uh, or an India pale ale, um, and the, <clears throat> the, usually it's named after India pale ale. And what happened there was is um, Britain probably 100, 150 years ago, used to send a lot of beer to the troops in India, the colonial troops in India. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they realised to keep that beer fresh, they needed to put extra hops in it. So by the time it kind of you know went halfway around the world and through those temperatures and got to India, it was actually still tasting like the beer back home. Right. Um, but what happened apparently uh, is a shipwrecked um, carrying uh, India Pale Ale um, soon after it left London and washed back up on the shores of southern England and they drank the beer and uh, that's when that style of beer was kind of created they, you know love that hoppier kind of so they, yeah they drank it earlier and yeah. we actually this is not too bad yeah oh how funny mm. isn't it I guess that's because the, the beer of old was not gassy was it no no it wasn't they, no. They, well they ale ales so yeah. all natural fermentation so um, the it, it it was carbonated, but came from a natural source of you know, CO two in it. Whereas most beer is actually like soft drink injected with CO two to give the the bubbles. But when you're like I know I worked in an in a English pub in Sydney for many years, the Lord Dudley, big shout out. They had quite a few pommy beers, <clears throat> and the ales were just 
Yeah, the, the hand pulls. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't like them at all. Right. Yeah. Just I don't know. I just liked the I guess the bubble and the yeah just were, yeah you know. the, the Christmas well the Christmas that kind of bubble yeah, right. palette. Yeah. Well, I guess it's a heat. I was Australian heat and the quenching yeah. and the white sort of stuff. And I was, this yeah. is just like yeah, which is piss. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I didn't. I didn't like. I didn't like it at all. I'd always go. You really want to do that? Well, the English. Yeah, you, you don't like. You just yeah. forget. You're like. You're not going to talk them out of it. Yeah. But anyone else, I go. Are you sure you don't want a good? I don't know. Two is old or something. Something. Yeah. Like a bit of bit yeah. of bite and a bit of bubble. Um. So more of that. Yeah. So beer. Um, beer fragrance skin skincare and and the fragrance did really well. Another like a car. Um. Auction business that's still doing really well. Turner's Car Auctions, Grant, based here, based, based here. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. And yeah. did and I guess so. You were a venture capitalist. Is that what? Yeah, you, is that, probably. Is that the, your brand? Yeah, 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 did you have a little uh, like a, a a business where you would? And how 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 do, how do people approach you? Do you just go out to the market and say we're looking for the looking? Yeah, how does that work? It, people would approach us, and we were we were probably like a venture capital company, but. An active one. We only really had three to four investments at any one time, and we were quite actively involved ourselves. You know, so we weren't kind of managing a big portfolio. We would no. see a board paper once a month. We were we were typically you know knee deep in, in each business. And then would they expect those entrepreneurs who came to you and you've invested? Were they? Um, what was their expectation of you? Like, do they were you going? Look, I'm just a, I'm I'm investing. Yes, I can give you some time, but I imagine they'd be quite not demanding, but sort of there'd be high expectations of, you know, you're all the old blokes with all the skill and everything. Help us out, you know. Yeah, it, uh, it well, would depend. Yeah, some of them wanted to, you know, started off being quite hands off, but invariably all businesses face challenges, and you know, businesses are tough at the best of times. So you know, as it got tough, um, they would often want someone to. Get in beside them and give them a hand, especially if they'd been in similar situations in the, in the past. Was there any time when you were giving them a hand and just thinking, "What the fuck am I doing this for?" Yeah, yeah. What were you doing? Deliveries of skin uh, products or something? Uh, yeah, and just <laughs> yeah, and yeah, doing. Oh, just you know, going through acres of reports or you know, getting ready. We listed most of those businesses, so there's a huge amount of. Um, compliance work and getting a company ready for a listing and, and, and being listed, you know, massive amounts of governance and whatnot. So after a while that got a bit bit, a bit um, much tired. Yeah. So let's jump to so wading through um, investment in other businesses and and um, I guess utilising your skills there. What at what point did you think, oh I think I'm just gonna go and buy a farm? Yeah, I don't know when it uh, it was I started looking at farms, um We'd just exited one of the businesses, and I could see amongst me, Grant, and ourselves, it was getting to a point where we we weren't going to keep putting new businesses in. You know, we felt like um, we've had a bloody good run of this for the last 10 years or so, but it feels like we want to go off and do our own things, you know, uh, our own interests now. So, um, and I wanted to come to this part of the the country you know we, we'd come here holidaying skiing all that kind of stuff so we started looking at small farms thinking wouldn't it be great to live down here on a small farm um well i mean what was small what were you oh, 40 acres you know yeah, just right. a little lifestyle block. couple of sheep couple yeah. of cows yeah. yeah and we did we all came real close to buying a beautiful little 40 acre block um and we took the boys we got two sons took them they love their hunting took them for a walk around the boundary 
And they said, Dad, is, is there any, is it any bigger? Is there anything any bigger? <laughs> it is feeling a bit small. Go, go we shoot uh, over the fence. Yeah. <laughs> so we said, oh, well, maybe we'll look at something a bit bigger. So we started getting further away from Queenstown to look at bigger properties. And after looking at a bunch of farms, you know, finally, finally landed here. And what was the attraction? Apart from looking at that lake going, oh, my God, that's ridiculously beautiful. But what, what was the – I mean, this is a pretty I'm, – I'm, I'm Australian, clear, you know, obviously, and you've got some amazing country that goes down to the, the lake, <clears throat> you know, highly fertile, different climate to what's, you know, a 1,000 metres up. That's, yeah. that is, that's, that's wilderness. Yeah, we go from – I think the lake here is 400 metres above sea level, and you're right, where you and Richie went this morning is 1,600 metres above sea level, so it's quite a, quite a change. So um, it's, a, it's a massive area of farm, but it's a massive – like the, the variation on yeah. management – yeah. You know what's required, the infrastructure, the size. It I mean, is. Did you, yeah. you, you, you look again? You kind of, if we're honest, I think we're quite naive. You know, we we got here. This is beautiful. Um, I think I think our process was this is beautiful. Wow, it's got potential. You know, if we could kind of clean up those, get those gates swinging, and kind of clean up some of those woody weeds, and it'd be a nice place to build a house. And it'd be, and we, and in time we could make it park-like. You know, that's that was back to the park. That was kind of yeah. my motivation. You know, I secretly making a park-like farm has no economic return to it whatsoever. But maybe it's an ego thing. I was just in, in back of my mind, I was thinking, wow, we could make this a you know beautiful, beautiful looking farm. So back to all oh, these front paddocks better be tidy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so and it was it was a working farm, wasn't it? When, yep. when you bought it? Yeah, yeah. Merino and beef with a bit know. of history. Yep. Over a hundred years old, you know, same family. Um, for, I think four generations, you know. So, um, no, it'd been a, a you know, and it'd been a successful merino property for for decades. So the so the way they ran the country in terms of sheep up the back and fencing and yep. you know the yep. way that that has to be <clears throat> unbelievably mustered. I still can't get my head around that. Um, that was already a thing. Yep. You, you didn't have to reinvent that. No, no. No, we, you know, we had to bring our own skills, you know, people like Jack and people with really good dog skills to, to managing the farm. But no, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a process, you know, you put your ewes out into that high country during summer, um, usually only for three or four months during the summertime. And there, oh, that's between, that's after weaning and then before mating? Correct. Yeah. 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 And they fatten up? They fatten up. Look. I think if we had more land down here on the flats, you know, they'd probably do as good, if not better, down here. But, mm. but Merino, they're, they're technically they're a um, they're a browser, not a grazer. So most sheep in the hierarchy of species, you know, most sheep are actually grazers, but Merinos are actually browsers. So they love two things. They love is space, and the other one is diversity. And so we'll get we'll get to diverse pastures. But when someone said to me diverse pastures and I realised that Merino were browsers you know I was thinking well, what, why aren't we giving them what their bodies actually have craved for probably you know hundreds of thousands of years and there is browsing up there isn't it because yeah. you've got that um, the tussock uh, a lot yeah. you know it's amazing you, you look at those tussock and that tussock you think no, sheep won't get much food value in that they won't eat that but they'll bury their nose in there and have a real good chew you know lovely little green shoots um, there's, there's, there is other grasses there. You know, there's, 
they'll, they'll eat some of the berries, lichen, mosses, you know, all that type of um, shrubs, uh, stuff that goes out there, you know, the tender shoots of Madagari and things like that they'll chew on. And it's bloody steep. It is. Like the way they can just scoot across. I mean, they're not like a mountain goat, which can pretty much nearly do vertical. But no. But they, that's incredible how they are very adapted to that country. They they love it. Um, and I think it's because apparently they, Marino came from Spain. You'll probably know this better than I. But um, they had wolves as natural predators, you know, hundreds of years ago. So they would, at the end of every day, they would go as a group to a high peak and stock camp on a high peak, which was their defence mechanism against wolves. Um, and which is why you round them up. They often kind of circle as mm. well, you know, like to... to um, less chance of being picked off by a wolf. Um, so you'll see some stock camps in some crazy places, you know, 1,200 metres on a little peak. There'll be three or 400 ewes sitting there every night. And that's probably only just there because there's a fence? That's a, that's the yeah. high spot because there's a yeah. fence there they can't yeah. get over or something? Yeah, yeah, often the case. I yeah. would not want to be fencing out the back there. No, it's it's tough and it's hard to maintain. So we lost a bit of fencing last summer, mm-hmm. uh, last winter rather, in From s- snow. So big snowdrifts just will kind of slowly move. And like the whole, glaciers, glaciers. Yeah, and the whole fence gets laid on its side and it all mounts. And you get really? what was a fence is now kind of lying in the dirt. So you have to do a bit of a boundary ride before you put sheep out there to make yeah. sure they end yeah, up. Yeah, doing a bit, even now we're doing a bit, yeah. yeah. Wow. And so um, turned up here, going to put your feet up, <clears throat> bit of farming, few cows, few sheep. Yeah. Big G- property though, how many hectares? Uh, six and a half thousand hectares. Um, so acres, that's what, 12, I think it's uh, six, 15, 000, acres, yeah, 16? Yeah, 16, I think. Jesus. Yeah. Um, but it's in it's kind of three zones. I think there's about 500 hectares you can get a tractor over or close to, you know. Down this, down down this here, yeah. Um, then there's probably 1,500 on these steeper gullies behind us. Yep. Um, which has got a surprising amount of, it's steep, but surprising amount of food in it. Um, and they they run um, east west. So in the spring, the north facing slope comes away real quick. It's got a lot of clovers and things on it, um, quite warm. But then late summer, when everything gets real dry, it's the south facing stuff that's hold on, held on, and is still green. So it's a nice little little balance uh, there, actually. And so, um, what what point did you sort of get here and go? Oh shit! There's actually. Well, not oh shit, but like, oh, there's actually a whole lot of stuff we can do here. Well, I think we did, did. did you just get at your feet going, you know, we're entrepreneurial, we're marketers, we've got this farm, yeah. look at the location. Was, was there a point that you and Justine looked at each other and went, we've got to do some stuff here? I don't think there was this, there was probably 10 points, you know. Mm-hmm. There, it was like we spoke to some clients. Um, there's a whole bunch of things that went on. We spoke to some clients on the other side of the world buying wool. You know, that was a big, you know, and when you're in marketing, the first thing you do is you speak to your customers and see what they want, you know. So that's one of the first things we did. Um, we we started reading and being curious um, about what's going on in farming. There was a lot of debate in New Zealand at the time about um, the emissions profile of farming and that farming potentially is um, a problem in the climate crisis. And so we got curious about that and, you know, started asking ourselves, how can it be a solution to the climate crisis? You know, is is, is there a way of, of working towards that? Um, and and then I think we, you know, the other, the other interesting thing that we stumbled across a little TV episode on a regenerative farming system two or three hours from here, and that just intuitively made a lot of sense to us. We didn't know anything about it. 
but we started ringing up people like John O'Frew and we, we started reading and we started following you on Instagram and we thought, hang on, this kind of makes sense to us. Why don't we, why don't we give that a bit of a crack? Um, so, yeah, we just started trying all those things and, and the cool thing was actually, um, maybe no surprise, is that when you speak to your customers, um, they start saying things to you like, you know, fashion brands on the other side of the world, uh, are you guys farming regeneratively? Because um, it's quite a, it's interesting to us. You know, when Vogue magazine comes out with an, an article that says regenerative agriculture can save the world, but what is it? You know, it's it's not only some language that's that we're hearing more and more in farming. We're we're hearing more and more in the consumer world. So, as a marketer, you, you need to join the two together. You know, that's how that's how you earn ideally, you know, greater, greater premiums for what you produce. So, what was the name of the mob that you were inspired by? Uh, there's a station called Lynburn Station Lynn in the, the Maniatoto. A guy there called um, Peter Barrett, and Peter would. Look, he wasn't one of the first, but he was. He was. He came back to done very well in business overseas. Came back to the family farm, working bloody hard, getting the recommendations from the seed and fur companies, kind of, and not not really changing, moving the dial. You know, doing everything to the, to the textbook, and still not doing well enough, really, for all the all the work and capital going in. So he started trying multi species pastures and. Had some really good gains in soil health. Why? What was it? <clears throat> you said it sort of made sense. I think it was your words just a minute ago. What? 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 What actually made sense? Like, what was it? That, so there, there, yeah. there was a message from consumers or the yeah. or the marketplace saying, "Oh, you know, are you doing regenerative stuff?" But what? Yeah. That's one thing. But what? What about it was making sense? Um, look, it was probably intuition that. Um, it looked when you looked at a multi-species pasture, you, there seemed to be a hell of a lot more life going on in there, and um, this, certainly the big thing was diversity. And then, if you if you think about natural systems, if you think about nature, and nature's worked really hard for millions of years to get ecosystems right um, and strong and powerful and productive and resilient. So, if you look at nature for a few hints. Now, I can't think of a monocrop or a mono species in nature pretty much anywhere. You know, nature has used diversity for all those re- reasons. So I thought, well, why are we, why are we trying to monocrop and pasture when nature is actually doing something probably far better, far stronger, far more productive, um, and they're using diversity? Um, it looks, to, your un, to my untrained eye, it looks more productive, you know, it just looks more life going on. Um, and I guess the more I read, it was pretty light reading, to be fair, but the more I read, the more the more it seemed to make sense. So was there a bit of a push and a pull? There was a pull towards, well, a pull from the customer going, yeah. hey, yeah, exactly. this is what we're interested in, and there yeah. was a push away from, I guess, not that you, you grew up on a farm, and I guess there was some, you know, there was conventional farming and kind of grounding in that, but there was a push away um, <coughs> from things that, <coughs> as you said, didn't feel right or didn't look right or the yeah. monocultures are kind of, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah definitely a push and pull. I don't know which, which was uh, which was the strongest, actually, both both pretty strong. Um, and I guess, you know, like being in business for years, you, your antenna goes up when um, 
you been you, you know when you've been sold something and a lot of farms and we talked about it just before you know the 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 big winners in agriculture in Australia and New Zealand it seems for the, financially the last few years aren't actually the farmers it's kind of the middle the middlemen you know it's the agents and um when you look at we, we were like the same we got soil tests done here from the big food companies we got our recommendations surprise surprise we needed to buy a bunch of their products um you know, surprise, surprise, actually, it was no different than the farm down the road when I spoke to them, um, but I knew the farm down the road was quite different to us, so, you know, the old antenna goes up and goes, hang on, something, something's not quite right here, I reckon. So then you just start trialling your own stuff, you know, and um, and if you look at the fertiliser bill, I'm not sure in Australia, fertiliser is typically the biggest expenditure line item for a, for a farm in New Zealand. Um, and so, it, you know, in business, when, you, when you're trying to strive for profitability you look look at your biggest cost centers and so it's, it's true in farming you know the one that stands out is fertilizer so and labor too and and labor your labor is actually huge yeah yeah as, and so you know is there a better way of, of handling that fertilizer cost? so um insp- insp- inspired somewhat yep yeah where'd you start we started in one wee paddock um, down on the lakefront. It was only like two hectares, I think. Did, I, sorry, did, did, what about people, though? Oh, did people? You, well, I mean, did, did you sort of go, I actually need help, I need a good person? There was practice change, but there was there like a business structure, like, oh, shoot, how, where, what do we have to do to build build this this thing? Yeah. Um, what do you reckon you, you, we were going to start on your own? Well, we started, we started by starting on our own. So we just – we rang up the seed rep and said, we want some of this, some of this, some of this, some of this. And they said, yeah, I can get you all that seed, but it doesn't come together in a mix. You're going to have to mix it yourselves. So it, w- it was a bit of a play, to be fair, to start with. So, you know, let, let's just have a look at two Experiment. or three hectares and see what happens, you know. And we liked it enough to then start saying, actually, we probably need to know more. And we rang up John O, you know, we rang up the... the, the um, Peter at Lindburn Station. I spoke to another chap who'd been doing it for 15-odd years, a real pioneer, a guy called David Crutchley, um, and um, started doing some proper research. And that's when we said, right, we're actually going to you know, get into it in a, in a bigger way. I think we put 30 hectares in the following year, and you know, now we're up to about 70 or 80 hectares a year. And um, back to the... Um you know, the enterprise here with sheep. Were there cattle here before? Yep. Yeah, Hereford cattle. And, and what did you know about them, sheep and cattle? Um, we did always have a few beefies, as Dad called them, on the farm, not many. Yeah. And so but my dad actually um, grew bulls um, for a while, He and he loved bulls. You know, they're fast-growing and you can kind of keep them well-behaved and they don't <laughs> smash fences. They, they do all right. Um, but this isn't, you know, winters are a bit of a pinch point here, so we didn't want to winter too many um, you know, you know, um, stock that require a truckload of food over winter. So the great thing about a ewe in this country is they're happy as Larry in those those gullies I was talking about through winter. You know, and the lambs will put down on the real high performing flat stuff with some of those regenerative crops. Um, but we don't winter our calves; we'll sell them off as weaners. So mm. we don't have to. You know, we, we we don't have you know thousands of thousands of hungry mouths through those those winter months. And Jack came on board pretty early, didn't he? Very early, yep. He was first he was here on day one, really. 
Yep. So he really set the pace for, okay, we should have this many cows and this many sheep. We can sort of take that. Did you, did, was it walk in, walk out? Did you take on all the sheep that we Yeah, did? we took on the sheep but not the cattle. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard, it hard to buy a merino flock in New Zealand. I'm not sure about Australia. You know, they're pretty, pretty no, they're bloody cheap at the moment. Merinos, oh, yeah, Jesus. You can give them away pretty much at the moment. Yeah. You can buy a good merino ewes at the moment, I reckon, for 130 bucks. Yeah. Which in Australia is like, that's cheap. Yeah. That's cheap. We actually, I was just talking to Jack as I walked in here. We, he just did his feed budget. We'd have a great autumn, and he's saying, actually, we could actually handle a few more ewes. So yeah, right. we might see if we can get a few more. We should get them from Australia. Can you do that? You, you, a few guys have bought in um, uh, rams from Australia. You know, um, there's a quite a nice genetic line that Australian Merino have that is coming in. Which one's that? Uh, could be from Borowa, you know, because Borowa be. has a, the highest concentration of fine wool merinos does it? in Australia. Does it? What? Yeah. Micron, do you know? Oh, seven. It's not fine, oh, yeah. fine. Like Crook yeah, yeah. and near us is like the fine, fine, like 15, 16. Yeah. Borowa might be closer to, I don't know, 17, 18. Yeah, we're about 17. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Any studs come to mind? There's a stud in the in the north of South Island called Middlehurst, and they, they do a lot of... Um, all their genetics are out of Australia. Yeah, right. Yeah. I know they get Sli- from. Slightly bigger sheep. Yeah. Longest stri- staple length. Yeah. But not as kind of thick. You know, like if you look at their genetics, the wool will open up. Open you know, up, yeah. Quite easy. You don't want that here with all the rain. No, you d- like here it's more, it's a bit like, more like a cauliflower. Yes. It's quite pa- packed tight. Yeah, you want um, For some of the sheep down here. And they're slightly smaller. But they, those slightly smaller sheep do, do better on the steep hills, I think. And tell me back to I'm just trying to blend the advertising with, with farming. Yeah, Where, how does that sort of blend? Well, and again, another another opportunity okay. or situation where yeah. yourself and Justin are working together. Yeah, we you know although we work together in you know forty two below, we, we haven't worked together like as intensively as we now are until till now. You know mm. that's that's when the as a couple when the the pressure really comes on when you when you work in. You know, twenty four seven. You know, in the in the same house and the same farm. Welcome together. to farming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't can't leave that that business uh, behind for the day. So um, you, you're playing to your strengths. Do you think? Yeah, I, th- I think so. Yep, yeah. I think so. I think the advertising and farming thing. You know, on the face of it, you'd say there's no link uh, or there's no value. But um, I think what we are doing is kind of knowing what the customer wants, and you know, we're hearing more and more that. Customers, particularly in wool, want um, climate positive wool. Um, they want really um, transparent, um, you, you know, knowledge of that farm or transparency to that farm. Animal welfare is really, really important. There's still a lot of people that believe that for a sheep to be shorn, it's it's brutally harmed or even killed. You know, or the, the process of shearing is is is, is yes. harmful for the sheep. Yeah. So we we we're working really hard, and we've got a new metric for shearing. But to show that actually that that it can be a, a very calm experience for the sheep and it's um, it's uh, actually a, a, a positive uh, from an animal well-being point of view. You know, we all need a, a good haircut from time to time and a, and a sheep's no different. Um, and so our big things have been understanding the consumer from animal welfare, carbon, regenerative farming and biodiversity. Those, those are the four. And they're the four because we believe we can... Um, attach a premium to our wall because of it 
and the other four because those are the, those are the four we believe in. So, you know, this, this is going to sound like a cliche, but it's it should be better for planet and better for pocket is 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 the theory. Mm. And it has a been? Yes, definitely, and will for yeah. sure. We we I don't think we've cracked meat yet. There's a few more challenges in meat, but we absolutely hundred percent in in wool. Because yep. you guys are you were the first farm in New Zealand to be accredited, is that the right word? Yep. Yeah, yeah, certified as um, carbon zero, but and actually to, to show that we sequester almost or well, actually more than twice what we emit. And 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 briefly, how does that how do they work that out? You get a um, mob come on and do an audit basically. Yeah, there's an audit. We've done it we've done a couple of different audits and they come up with a pretty much the same answer. So in New Zealand, there's a like a software package called Overseer. I'm sure you've got something similar. You put in your stock numbers, you put in your tractor hours, your, your electricity, any fertiliser, and, and it'll give you a number. And our, our number was 2,500 tonnes of greenhouse gas equivalent. Em- emitted. Emitted oh, every okay. year. And so we saw that number and said, well, phew, that's a huge number. Um, what was that What was that called, that Bob, the, you put in? O- Overseer. Overseer, right. Yeah. yeah, I think in Australia there's one Ruminati, oh, yeah. which I... I Know a couple of people in, and um, not a dissimilar thing by the sounds yeah. of overseer. Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. And then you look at your uh, sequestration side, and so that's largely your trees, your native regenerating trees. Fortunate for us, a lot of gullies, a lot of steep country had been left, hadn't been grazed, um, of marginal grazing quality anyway. And that was naturally regenerating. You know, we're close to the main divide, close to natural forests, just like a pasture. If you leave it, it's going to grow interesting stuff. So, so too is that country. It's going to regenerate into into bush, and a lot of it is. So, they measured you know age and stage of trees, and there is some lookup tables saying Kanuka at ten years old over this land covering is sequestering X. You know, and you go through that. It was done first of all with high res photography people looking at that and then a bunch of people ground truthing it mm. yep. and and now it's done through satellite AI um, imagery and quarter of the time and quarter of the cost and um, the satellite figures were pretty much exactly the same as the as the analog ground truth so figures. you had both methods done yeah which is probably pretty good you know ver- yep. verifying yeah yeah, wow. Yeah, I guess that's that's a that's a good use of technology, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Being yeah, on, like satellite and all that sort of cable. Yeah. And so they, uh, so why why did you think that was an important thing to do? Um, well, like everyone who's got children, you know, people are becoming more climate aware. Jussie and I, we we are always. She's been a member, of, you know, like environmental um, groups for years. You know, she's been a supporter of Greenpeace at times. I was part of a group I still am called Pure Advantage. Um, so we, you know, somewhere, some back, some, you know, somewhere in our in our his, history, we became quite avid supporters of, of environment and environmental causes. So we thought it was important for that reason. And then we met a couple of clients who were buying wool or would buy wool off us, and they said one one guy who'd started a fashion brand called Sheep Inc, which stands for Sheep Included, a sweater brand. You buy a sweater and you adopt a sheep from the farm it comes from. Um, What's it called? Sheep. Sheep Inc. I N C. Ah, right. It's got a little QR code on your on your sweater, and that'll take you to the farm. Your sheep, uh, your wool came from. Yep. And um, and we've got a program we use all our stock management called Farm IQ here. So when Jack and Lockie are moving a mob of sheep, they'll say, "Oh, the two tooths." So I've just put them in a paddock called Still Lake. Put that in, and it'll send an alert to Sheep Inc. And they'll say all the all the sheep in that. Um, 
paddock, if, if, if you had adopted a sheep that's in that group in the tutus, you'll get an alert. So let's say you're sitting in New York, you know, you're out for oh. dinner, you'll just get a little alert. Let's say you've called your sheep Dolly, and it'll say Dolly's uh, just gone to Still Lake, new paddock of fresh regen, and she's about to meet her boyfriend for the first time. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> So there, so you've got say a thousand ewes do that, and then yep. two hundred are adopted out. Yeah. So all those two hundred people will get that message. That's right. Yeah. <clears throat> but and yeah. the, so does that rely on? Um, do you have EID technology yeah. in your ears now? Yeah. So yeah. is is that is that relying on that EID for those who don't know EID is electronic identification? What's the D bit? Anyway, it's basically a chip yeah. that's in uh, an ear tag that's there for life, and it gets scanned at different stages going through races and whatever, and um, ID'd and information can be attributed to that animal. Yeah. So that's not necessarily relying on that. It's just that, we, you know, in Farm IQ, yeah. Dolly's in that mob. Yeah. Dolly gets moved. Yeah. Dolly's owner yeah. gets a message. That's right. Yeah. And it's somehow um, uh, it says Dolly not the wrong sheep. Like yeah. It says, hi, yeah. Bob, Dolly has gone yeah. to a new paddock. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, I've never heard. That's in, that's incredible. Yeah, it's, it's it's cool. What what are they? What are they? How much do they adopt it for? Um, it's free. Free when you buy a sweater. Oh right. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. you get the sweater, and and, and then a sheep with it. it yeah. Hence the name sheep included. A sheep is included with your oh. sweater. Yeah. <laughs> so you spend you spend you spend whatever on the sweater. Yeah. Classic. That's great. And that wool has come from that farm. Yeah. But to uh, I think to answer your question, um, we got distracted there. Um, when we spoke with the founder of Sheep Inc., um, he said fashioned is uh, responsible for thirteen percent of global emissions. That's more than aviation and shipping combined. And consumers are starting to wake up to the the the, the dangers or the, the footprint the, the footprint of fast, particularly fast fashion. You know, a lot of brands that were spitting out cheap plastic. Clothing, basically, and you know, I think seventy percent of all clothing is made from you know byproducts of the petroleum industry. So it's how much? Seventy, seventy. Yeah, yeah. So you know, natural fibers like cotton, hemp, wool, actually only make up a very small part of of um, of what we wear, uh, unfortunately. But um, petroleum, uh, you know, is the is the core ingredient, basically, in all other forms of clothing, you know, polyesters and and whatnot. Uh, so it's bad for the environment when you make it, bad for the environment when you wash it, you know, largely microplastics. A lot of it's got PFAS on it. Um, and then it's bad for the environment at end of life because it sits in a landfill for a thousand years, you know. So so anyway, um, um, and the emissions profile is terrible. So um, Izzard from Sheep Inc. said, what if we could make a fashion brand that was 10 times, in the UK they call it carbon negative, which is... There's another way of saying climate positive. Um, just to confuse everyone. <laughs> um, the jargon. But it's it's a good thing. And um and we thought, well, hang on, if fashion brands are thinking like that, is a you know, sheep pink won't be the only one. Um, what if we could make climate positive wool? Therefore they're gonna want it, therefore it's a competitive advantage for us, therefore we should be able to um, command a premium for it. So it's kind of that marketing um, basic marketing. DD really, so, and so we, that was like, hang on, here's an opportunity. So again, you've because you did your audit, you've got the yep. measurements yep. or the the balance balance of that, the ins yep. and outs. You're carbon po- uh, climate positive, so you're sequestering more than you're emitting. Yep. Your sheep are in that system. They're growing wool. You cut the wool. Yep. 
and then that wool goes. Do you have your own brand, or you're, that's going to a brand that yes. that is that, yep. that has similar wool from similar farms? Yes, yeah. In a couple of instances, like we've just done the um, their first the world's first carbon zero shoe with Allbirds, and so it was exclusively LHS wool went to make that shoe. Um, um, so just uh, whereas in Sheep Inc, we go with two other farms, which are similar. Profiles. It could be blended, so someone could, could get that brand. Of, this could have a bit of your wool, but like it's in a blend. Like a, Sheep Inc, it could be one of three farms. Yeah, uh, all birds. It's j- just one farm ours, and the other two farms in the Sheep Inc are po- uh, climate positive yes, as well. Yeah, so it's done, all in the same. They've pool. done the work correct. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And then the, the shoe brand, they were again looking for a similar kind of. Uh, we we want to. Be supporting a, a positive yep. thing. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Is all your wool doing that? Yeah, um, we our clients are Allbirds, uh, Sheep Inc, uh, a brand in New York called Another Tomorrow, pretty cool brand. Very, you know, sustainability based, as the, as the name would suggest. What do they make out of them? High end women's fashion. So, I'm a bit out of my depth here, but you know, just beautiful high end. Come um, on. Um, Jeff, you should know about your high-end women's fashion, woolen garments. Yeah, woolen garments, jackets, knitwear, you know, um, you know, various kind of fabrics that are made with wool as well. The the full works, pants. Well, the the the, the Americans have certainly changed their tune about wool because I heard a story years ago about in the I don't know if it was the first or second World War they decided they'd give all the all the troops woolen undies uh, for warmth. And they were so bloody hot and itchy that uh, they just they had a the, the, the Americans hated wool. I don't know, it was some some right. cultural thing. Yeah, but now I mean things have changed a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't heard that story, but that that makes sense. Yeah. And I, I have firsthand um, experience just briefly um, the Bora Rugby Club, who are very proud rugby players and have been here for into New Zealand for. Um, uh, what Good do you trip. call them? A bit of a bloody fit, um, football tours. Tour. Yep. yep. Um, uh, they, I played in the first game back in the, I reckon it must have been the mid 90s, where someone in the club had decided, oh, we're a wool growing area. We'll make some, get some woolen jerseys made up and we'll wear them and they'll, we'll set a new sort of a bit of a thing. And we wore them. And my God, <clears throat> everyone, everyone, half time they all came off. They were so itchy and hot. And right. it was the first game of the season, so it's probably in March yeah, or April. Yeah, yeah. Still pretty warm. Yeah. The most horrible football experience of my life. I don't know what happened to those jerseys because I'm sure they've probably ended up, they're probably like, you know, probably yeah. bits of history. Should be in a museum. Yeah. And never worn again. But um, yeah, wool's come a long way. Hasn't it, it has, in terms yeah. Of yeah. Know, for base layers, particularly, you know. And now more and more mid layers. And then I've heard of some people looking at outer layers as well, like a really, really tight weave. Um, and then looking at various forms of nano coating to actually get the waterproof. So, right. you know, the problem with fabrics like Gore Tex, for instance, we all, we all wore Gore Tex because we love being out in nature, but we're wearing a whole bunch of petroleum on our back. You it know, is, so, isn't it? Yeah. so there's got to be some natural alternatives um, to outerwear, I think, on the, on the way. Is that another thing you're looking at? Yeah. Oh, we're not. I think I think a few brands are though. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a, a bunch of um, outdoor brands are looking at it for sure. Talking about outdoor brands, just quick segue. That coat of yours I had on this morning, yeah. that was incredible. Yeah, that's what is it? What's it called? It's, it's called Cactus. They're a local brand, so it's like here, local New Zealand, or like, local no, local New Zealand yeah. brand or Christchurch brand. And um, the two cool things about that is one is when you're on the farm in winter, you need a lot of a puffer jacket is actually the best, it's a great form of warmth. Um, mm. But the bugger with most puffer jackets in country like this is they'll rip 
you know, oh, and, yeah. and within five totally. minutes you've lost half the down. You've got there. a lot of spiky plants. A lot up there. of spiky plants. So it's yeah. got a canvas outer, so it's super hard wearing, um, and it's, it's got a really good quality down in it. So you, look, you could sleep in the snow in that thing and you'd be fine. It was incredible because I had a puffer, that one over there. It's like a Nike. It's not nothing flash, but it is down. Yeah. And um, as the higher we went, I think um, Richie was saying every hundred meters you go up. I don't know. Or maybe I mean, there was some, you know, as yeah, you go you up, you, you lose the temperature. By yeah. the time, oh, geez, I was glad I had your coat. Yeah. And some nice merino possum gloves. Yeah, I saw those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they look very farmy, but bloody hell, no, they're, no. They're, they're warm. That's fascinating. I love that, that whole the story. It just gets me thinking about what we're doing at home because we're – we're looking at doing, a, um, a, 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 I guess, a carbon order at the moment with, with Ruminati yep. and, a, and yep. an impact ag helping us kind of navigate that world. Um, we have composite sheep at the moment. Yeah. And it costs more to shear them in a 12-month yeah. period, shear and crutch, than the wool. Than the, oh, the, no, the, that's the, crazy. You, get, you come back. Yeah. We've got to f- fix that. Same in New Zealand. And it's probably more – it's worse in New Zealand because 80% of – New Zealand's sheep flock is a composite or a strong wool. Yeah. Only 20% yeah, is greener. Well, well known for that, Whereas yeah. in Australia, I think it's it's the reverse of it, that. It, or, it, or, well, or maybe not reverse. I think, I think the, the, the composites, are, there's more and more because shearers are harder to come across. There's less people shearing. And yeah. so there's some people you know who are looking towards um, the composites. Uh, they still need shearing, of course, but... Um, there's less labour because they're less likely to get fly blown and yada yada, and some of them don't need um, mulesing and that sort of thing. But the shedding sheep, I don't know if I yeah. say they're getting more popular, but people are thinking, God, if, if I get a shedding sheep, I don't have to shear the bloody thing, yeah. so I don't have to. There's not that cost. Yeah. It's so the, so it's, thinking here. So the yeah. proportion, you know, the proportions are changing somewhat. Yeah. But if you think, look, we've got to do a job on like things like carpet um, insulation. You know, acoustic panelling, um, even even outdoor, um, you know, geotextiles, weed mats, things like that. There's there's got to be a- advantages for wool versus synthetics and yes. all those applications. And we've kind of, I think, in New Zealand, we've been we 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 haven't done a very good job, and we've let the synthetic kind of big bully companies, you know, largely from the US or Europe, come in here and. Um, you know, destroy a lot of value of, of all carpets. And well, it's a great product for, for carpet. Absolutely. I mean, I guess traditionally the, you know, the, the carpet wools, I remember doing my um, wool classes certificate at school and that was one of the, the, the oh, I can't think of the bloke's name, Bob Thompson, this is his name. Amazing old bloke. Anyway, carpet wool. You know, that was yeah. that was the, the we, we wasn't even composites back then. It was just the yeah. the British breeds and the yeah you know, the the stronger stronger micron. But it was you know, it was carpet wool. And New Zealand featured a lot there because we sort of blaming them for the these carpet wools in Australia. Right. Bloody carpet wool because there was still a pretty strong merino right. industry yeah. back then. Yeah, you and you were influencing us Australians right. with your bloody composite. Yeah, wool. well, we, well, I, I apologise <laughs> on behalf <laughs> on behalf of all of New Zealand to yeah, to yeah, all yeah, of us yeah. to all the merino breeders in Australia. Yeah. Um, I think that's fascinating. That's awesome. Tell me about the, um, uh, <clears throat> I guess, the the reason why, and it, it's probably obvious, I mean, certainly obvious to me because I'm here and I can see the beauty in the, you know, ex- having experienced it, but why heading down the track of agritourism? Um, a bit like the farming, really. We had a couple of cottages on here. We knew a lot of – it kind of grew on us. You know, we, I don't think we – set off, you know, on day one saying, hey, we're going to do this thing called agritourism. But we had some cottages. 
a lot of people come to this part of the world for you know skiing for adventure tourism to to use the lake in summer um so we thought oh well you know here's an accommodation opportunity we'll um rent out our cottages um but my wife doesn't like doing things, you know, kind of half-assed. She she um, <laughs> made sure they're well presented. You know, the linen linen's perfect, and all, all those details are thought through. Um, was but, this a, was this an, an, uh, a new skill or a new application of that skill? Like, were you going? Oh my God, you're really good at this. Yeah, because because what I do Jeff, know is for what you say, I know, you, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm not. Um, so <laughs> I'm reminded of that often. No, she, I think, you know, we're fortunate enough to probably have done a lot of travel. And, like, for instance, she'd read Condé Nast Traveller, the magazine, for 20 years, you know. So she, travel was something she was really interested in. So she's kind of just um, been able to put those years of reading and looking and travelling into application. Yeah. That's fantastic. She's done an amazing job. She, she has. But the really interesting thing, which we did anticipate, was a lot of people now. Uh, interested in, and which is why we brought on Richie, uh, interested in the farming and the biodiversity and the ecology. So they don't just want to come here and have a bottle of nice Otago Pinot by the fire, which which is part of which it. Which is but they, good too. They do want to go out and see what Jack's doing in an afternoon when he moves a mob of sheep or go and, and walk in a pasture and figure out you know why we've got 20-odd species in there and, and learn about that and learn about understand carbon and... Um, some of the interesting biodiversity, yeah. So I think you know it's a, it's a really growing. You know, I think twenty years ago it felt like, and I'm just generalising, farming cousin farming wasn't cool really. You know, you speak to a young person, there's no kind of cool factor in farming, but it feels like, um, and I'm hoping it's a little bit of you know interest and cool factor is starting to come to farming now. Why is that? Why, why is that a thing? Good question. Well. I, I say that because you have know, seen movies or documentaries like uh, Kiss the Ground or Big Little Farm or Red Books, you know, like Sacred Cow and there's the Savory Ted uh, talk from, you know, Alan Savory. There's, it started to re-enter popular culture. Um, I think I think we're more, we're, uh, maybe it's to because we're more aware of where our food and fibre comes from, you know, like we're more aware of where everything comes from, maybe as consumers today. 20 years ago, we didn't, didn't care if our Nikes were made in a sweatshop or or where. You know, now now we actually do care about those things. <clears throat> and I think the same with our food and fibre. And they can just buy that food, couldn't they? Or they could just buy those, yeah. that woolen garment. But people sort of want, actually, I want to go to that farm or I want mm. to get on, on ground or, you yeah. know, eat, <clears throat> eat, eat, eat at the farm where that food's Correct. Grown. Yeah, that's. I think there's a number of interesting movements. The big macro trend is people want to connect with the source, and the source not being kind of the the stainless steel factory where it's made. The source is being actually where it's where it's growing. So that's a big kind of movement. And the other one, probably since COVID, is that more. It's kind of that local. You know, one the circular economy and the local connections are becoming big. You know, we're going through the farms going through that B Corp process at the moment and surprisingly a huge part of that is what you buy and sell and support in your local community i think they give you a radius of maybe 100 k's or something like that so they want to know what level of business you're doing within that that um geography and not just business with the local supermarket like for you know stuff but like who's Whose trees are you buying at the nursery, or yep, who's kind exactly. of what other businesses you're supporting that are kind of yep. nature based, or, yep. or or yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, very much so. 
who looks after all that sort of stuff? That, I mean, because that B Corp thing, I know people have been through it and they say it is exhausting. Yeah. I'm not saying people shouldn't do it, but it's it's, it's not just like, oh, I can just quickly go to that B Corp stuff. No. You know, is, it, is, that, is that fall upon you? Do, you? do you have good people who wade through all that sort of stuff? Um, me a little bit, but the other great asset here, other than my wife, is our two sons. Yeah. And so my oldest son, he is, um, he's been very involved in that. So we're, we're pretty fortunate to have You're some, a good delegator. some free Steve. labor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to it, what? To it is a big process, though. That your, your, your friends have told you it's a big process. They are right. There's a lot of questions. Well, I guess that makes sense because it's, yeah, it's, it's not to be, yeah. you know, yeah. scoffed at. It's a yeah. it's pretty serious kind of a, a thing to, to be um, acknowledged that if you, if you get to that point. Um, successes, um, Jeff, would you say, I mean, Condé Nast, you know, accolade, that's, yep. that's a success. That's what other successes do you feel you've – and this is where you can pump your own tyres up a little bit. Like, don't, <laughs> don't, we don't like humility when you're answering this question. Right, okay. Um, well, look, one, oh, one thing, if you had have asked me this question um, around 11 months ago, um, we were right in the middle of – this um, farm, Lake Away Station, featured on a TV show here called Country Calendar. I'm going on a bit of a – uh, no, do it. Trip here. Do it. Um, so, Country Calendar, just so you know, it runs on a Sunday night in New Zealand. It has done for sixty years. It's one of New Zealand's highest rating programs. So, it, it'll it'll rate as high as the News or the All Blacks, just about. You know. So, yeah, well. And so they they really were keen to do a, an item on this farm. So we, after being asked about three times, we finally relented and said, okay. And so we did a we did a piece that went to air in about June last year. And so they came here, cameras, they came here, interviews. Cameras, the works, yep, yeah. filmed. Yeah, they saw sheep and cows and high country. The works, yeah. Yep. yep. Um, looked at our shearing methods, you know, and what we're doing to, to um, increase our animal welfare. Um, anyway, the show went to air on a Sunday night, and by Monday morning there was this massive brewing controversy in New Zealand. It was quite quite surprising. We had no idea. We're not on Facebook. So quite had no idea it was going on. So there's there's a, a lot of people in farming that thought this was um, – they. I think the, the, the vulnerability that we realise exists in New Zealand farming kind of was shown to us. And a lot of people are seeing too much regulation coming to farming. The returns are, are, are tough – they work bloody hard all week. Um, there's compliance coming, you know, a whole lot of challenges. And they they saw these folk fresh from the city, well, you know, f- four or five years from the city, that's, um, almost promoting change, and that was seen as a, a threat to many in New Zealand farming. So, you know, we got a lot of comments like, you know, shiny-ass bloody Aucklanders, you know, what do they know, you know. Um, but then we also started getting a lot of comment um, and w- to the positive, saying, look, we, we've got to be climate positive. You know, the world's going to demand, the world's got to de- decarbonise, we've got to protect our biodiversity, got to look at new ways of farming, got to look at less nitrogen, so all those less nitrate runoff. And so we found ourselves, we unbeknown to us, we kind of triggered a kind of a, it felt like a national controversy. You know, it was on radio, it was in press, it was bloody all over the place. There was, Did you, were you asked for comment? We, we started the week... Uh, it went to air on a... How did, on a so how did you find out? 
Um, someone rang us at like 7.30 on Monday morning uh, as a friend shit. saying, oh, my God, I'm embarrassed. I feel so sorry for you. This is terrible. I can't believe what I'm reading. And we had no idea. It was idea. in the papers. It was in on oh, Facebook. Both, right. Yeah, we had no idea what they were talking about. Um, and when so we you sat there on Saturday night watching it, and I said, oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Did you think it was a good story? Oh, <laughs> I think there's a few things they missed. You know, I think it was all right, but, you know, I think there's a few things they missed. The key thing I think they missed was – that all these things we're doing are not only good because we think they're better for the environment. We're doing them because it's a way of earning greater returns for farmers, mm. all farmers. You know, so it's a new new way of gr- attaching greater value to, to what we produce. Um, so I think that bit was missed a bit. Um, anyway, by you know, back in advertising days, you were, there's a bunch of cliches. One is. Um, uh, you don't feed, uh, you know, you don't give a fire, uh, you don't give a fire oxygen. So we thought, no, nah, we won't say a thing. Right. But by Wednesday, it just wasn't quieting down. And I was listening to the radio and they're having a personal attack at, at Jussie. And it was like, shit, this thing's not going away. It feels like it's getting bigger. And so a friend um, who's, who's someone I really, really respect, actually, Stephen Tyndall, rang me up and he said, I, th- I think you got to speak. You know, I think I think you got to get on on the front foot and you know have a cr- have a crack at this. So we thought, okay, let's go. So I rang the radio station that was we were listening to. Me and my son were listening to them, and within two minutes, we we're actually live on air. Um, <laughs> it's pretty easy news. You took so. you took the bait. Yeah, we took the bait. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sink, I think. Was it a um, commercial but, one or like a uh, like a government? Like no, an it was ABC a commercial one. Commercial one, yeah. yeah. But it, we started turning it around, you know, and you know, I think I think there's this um, also in society. There's, there's quite a lot of polarization, not just in farming, but in you know, in several countries at the moment. I think some. You know, we're quite fearful. This is a new way of woke farming. You know, was that, you know a few comments were this woke bullshit. You know, I think so there's a bit of anti wokeism uh, in there. I didn't even know what woke meant until you know till that time. But you know, when we said actually, I don't, I don't know that making more money is is part of woke. You know that. You know, we started saying some of that. It kind of quietened down, and then then I think touch wood, you know, the the kind of the moods swung the other way, and I think I'm glad we did speak because it it did did actually change. So back to your original question, which was... Um, success. Success. I reckon, weirdly, it didn't feel like it at the time, I, I reckon, weirdly, that was a bit of success because it actually got a lot of people thinking about how farming can change and how it potentially can do better for environment and, and return. So it was... We started a, a conversation. That's a terrible cliche, isn't it? But we started started people thinking about how things could be done differently. Well, and that's often – the catalyst for that is often controversy or, or or pain, you know, like the sort of – there's obviously – well, obviously, but, you know, some farmers heard that and they were – that caused them some pain enough to sort of think it was a what you, you bunch of, you know, yeah. silver ass whatevers. And yeah. so there's – that's interesting. And then obviously you went through a bit of pain – <clears throat> somewhat as the as the, the 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 target. So and yeah, what a wonderful thing that's come out of that then. Yeah, didn't feel like it at the time, but I think if you look oh, back and in hindsight, you know, I think it's actually been a really positive positive thing. Well, I guess it was good, you know, promotion. I know it was a tough way to get it, but you know, you it put you on the map for you know for whatever reason. But then you know you stood your ground, 
stood your ground and maybe talked some sense to it. Yeah. You know, well, I guess your side of the story, yeah. which is probably yeah. to some people was probably a relief. Yeah. To hear that, it was. Goes, oh, okay. That's and and we, yeah, then we got you know thousands of positive messages. You know, of course. From all sorts. But you don't remember the bad ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ones that landed in your mailbox with, you know, large expletives and, you know, quite personal attacks and things like that, yeah. It's interesting that maybe your farming practices were um, were told and people saw that and that that they – and look, understandably in some ways, I guess, you were potentially setting a new standard – of, of expectation of farmers in New Zealand, they're going, oh, God, I don't want to put mattresses on the bottom of my bloody shoots. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't want to bloody have some grading system for, you know, humane handling at shear. Like, I reckon they'd be going... I reckon, You've yeah. come in here with your bloody weirdo woke ideas and you're just yeah. going to make it hard for us. I reckon that's a big part of it, yeah. Easy for you. You've come in here. You're not, you know, you've come into it with some money. You you know, you're not on the bones of ours. You, know, you make it hard for us. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, it sounds like the tall poppies is, is alive and well here too, as well as Australia, is it? it? I think it is. Yeah, you know, not not just you know, it's. I think it's. Yeah, I think it is. You know, we've experienced it somewhat in other other businesses, and a lot of a lot of people do sport. You know, to some extent. Yeah. Till let's jump to while we're we're not on a downer, but we're talking about challenges. What other challenges have you? Um, whether it's climatic, whether it's um, uh, operational, whether it's kind of, I don't know, any other challenges that you've experienced in the last four or five years? Because it was 2017 you bought? 2017, 2018, we, uh, we bought, we settled in 18 and we took on the farming in 19. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yep. And you got the sheep. Um, yep. what, what, any particular challenges that spring to mind that, you know, again, you've overcome or you're still experiencing that are, need more work or, you know, you, you sort of, you, you, or have you sort of does the dust settle a little bit and you seem to be sort of yeah getting a bit of headway? I think the dust has settled a bit. Uh, there's certainly a lot of challenges. I think there's always always challenges in any business and, and farming included, especially when you've got you know seasonal and climatic variations. Um, look, we you know we've tweaked our pasture mixes and I think we'll keep doing that. You know, um, we had some. In our kind of first year, when we kind of became regen evangelicals, I said, "Let's go, let's get the, that seed in the ground, boys. It's there's, it's warm enough. I've put my probe in the ground. It's warmer than six degrees. We can be planting now." Yeah. And and uh, Jack was going, Are "You sure?" I said, "Yep, yeah, let's plant now." You know, because you'd read it somewhere, or yeah. The, yeah. Uh, well, it's just my probably on that case. Your know, intuition was saying if you you've got warm. Uh, moist soils get get seed in the ground, but what happened is we did go too early, and then by the following year, the, the some of that crop was getting quite stringy and dry. So when we needed it at its full high protein levels in kind of May right. June, it had it had kind of turned and was starting to look a bit shabby. So um, we now spread our planting. We do get some stuff in early, you know, but we we plant stuff later as well in the season and hedge our bets a little bit. Um, different plant mixes. Look, a challenge here. We've we've had a smother here um, where um, we we lost a, uh, a bunch of sheep, bringing them down off off a hill one day. They all they, they separated. One of the mobs panicked, tried to get back into the other mob, got caught on the other side of the fence. Luckily, our shepherd Lockie was there with his wire cutters and just went dunk dunk dunk, cut the fence completely. So we didn't lose any on the fence, but then they piled into a um, big bit of scrub. And so we lost some in a smother. That was that was bloody heartbreaking. Mm. 
Yeah. Yeah, no, that's um, – we lost uh, – I think well, many years ago, 20 years ago, about 300 hoggets, merino hoggets, off shears in February, cold snap came through. Oh, really? In a paddock, what I thought would have been plenty of – Wow. Plenty of um, yeah. cover. Well, yeah. there wasn't much tree cover, but there was deep gullies and things. And yeah. One of my station hands went up there a few days later and he said, oh, we've got a problem. Yeah. They're all piled up on top yeah. of each other. Just no, it's horrible. Good to see. Yeah. Horrible. Um, let's talk indigenous sort of things. I'm just yep. conscious of the time. My camera's just gone. Do you want to swap over? Or? No, low power mode. No, so we're only 20%. So okay. we should be right. Yep. That's a miracle. Um, yeah, like your, your, um, relationship with local Maori. Um, yeah, elders, and yep. you know like, how how important is that? What 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 role do they play in 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 the, in the station here? Well, uh, like most things, kind of a growing role. So Jesse and I are both from South Auckland, where where the you know the iwi and the, the Maori and Pacific influence is is pretty strong. You know, we went stronger to, up there than here, much stronger. Is yeah. yeah. So right. Jesse and I went to Pepperkara High School, which um, I think at the time was the largest Maori. Um, one of the largest, if not the largest, Maori high school in New Zealand. So it's something you know we you know we had Maori studies at high school, well before most other other high schools did. Um, so it was um, something we'd be you know we'd become really interested in you know for decades. Um, we came here and the main iwi in the South Island is called Naitahu, and they they didn't um, have strong settlements in these inland areas when European came. So there wasn't, um, although they came here in summers for a food source and a lot of travel on the way to the Greenstone on the on the coast. Um, there's a bit of Greenstone on the table. Oh, Richie mentioned that. Yeah. Actually, the Greenstone Trail. So there's some very port- important areas and trails um, and, and summer camps here for, for iwi. And so we, but we didn't, Feel we could access it, you know, when we got here. There's not a, there's no marae in, you know, a meeting place for iwi in Wanaka, whereas in most other North North Island towns will have a marae. There's not one here. Like so a physical meeting place, physical like, meeting like a building, place. like a, a busy, yeah, yeah right. a building. Are they yep. usually traditionally built? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Well. Uh, you know, with a lot of the storytelling that that that's yeah. important to that iwi, um, either expressed through carvings or you know weavings, um, and you know th- via cultural, you know, via song and stories as well with that community. So it's it was it was relatively light here when we arrived and you know still is, but that's not to say that there wasn't a really important history here. So we were lucky to connect with some Kamatua, some elders, um, a chap called Darren e, uh, Darren Rawi in Queenstown's been brilliant. Been here a couple of times and just help us understand um, you know what went on here, you know, two hundred years ago. Um, there's this this airstrip which we would have been part of a key trail from um, another valley system over into this valley system on on way t- on the way to the west coast to the Greenstone. So um, at the far end of the farm would have been a a, a summer camp area down by the lake. Um, so yeah, some of those stories have become really important, particularly in in tourism. Well, Richie was saying that he's had sort of. Um, one of the elders helped him identify some, you know, vegetation out there and yeah. sort of, you know, I guess stories about and, 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 you know, some interesting yarns about there's a one bush out there that's quite spiky and the way its growth pattern would indicate that it evolved with the, uh, what's the big birds? The, the, mo- the moa. The moas yeah. and that they're, they're spiky so the moas couldn't eat it. Yeah. But 
and its growth was in the in the sort of the middle of the plant sort of so so there's yeah, yeah it's fascinating yeah um, some of the I guess cultural and 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 um, for, flora and fauna yeah um, knowledge that that's been shared yeah yeah it's it's fascinating that knowledge you know it's and especially the food source you know that we we've never considered is is now is understanding what berries you know we can eat. Um, it's a pretty cool story. And the uh, Iwa, Iwa, Iwi, 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 yeah. Iwi is, it, that? Iwi is um, the tribe. So New Zealand, I'm not sure how many Iwi we have, but the South Island was one huge Iwi, one huge tribe. Tribe, right? Yeah, and there's certain sub tribes in there. Yep. The the hierarchy is Iwi, which is tribe, then Hapu, which is community, and then Farnau, which is family. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And so the word Maori is a general or a colloquial, or is that or inappropriate now? What's the sort no, of no Maori? Maori, you know, is is look. I it um, is. I think when I grew up, yeah, the term was Maori, but the correct pronunciation is closer to Maori. Maori, and, and uh, we, you know, no, it's absolutely the correct term. Yeah, and, um, it's, and it's it's a, it's a broader again, is it? Yes, is that's it, yeah. all, all iwi, or um, okay. you know, part of all iwi, iwi are part of Maori. Yeah. 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 Um, and it's. I, th- I feel like lang- Maori language is becoming nicely. Look, not all of us unfortunately can speak fluent Maori or Te Reo, but we're starting to get more use of it in popular culture. So um, there's some cool words that we're starting to use, and it's just starting to appear in in all sorts of language. Like one f- seems to be bigger, bigger at the moment is mahi, which is work. So often you're saying nice, ma- nice <laughs> mahi today, you know. Yeah, right. Nice so it's appearing today. in yeah. the English. Yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah. I saw, I noticed, some some of the signs here in the cabin, the um, <coughs> and elsewhere. Obviously, um, the you know those words and language. Yeah, yeah. we had a group of uh, some farming groups here yesterday. One from Taranaki um, and uh, Waikato in the north North Island, and um, just the sense of. Um, presence there, there was a, a, a Maori chap he spoke in Maori to open the meeting spoke in Maori to close the meeting we had a song in the middle of the paddock it, it just gave it more presence and more more meaning I think yeah we had a um, indigenous elder from a Ngunnawal mob at Canberra um, Paul House Paul Gira, um, uh House and he 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 was he nearly not quite eighteen months ago it was not last not last January January before might have been further longer than that actually but anyway he um it was it was spine tingling because he spoke in that language the Wiradjuri it was Wiradjuri but I guess it's it's variations on we are in Wiradjuri country at Burua and he spoke the language. And it was a, it was an it was a welcome to country because they, they can welcome us whiteies can't welcome we can only acknowledge yeah, yeah. so he did a welcome he did a um, a um, a few ceremonies and smoked the gum leaves you know like honest and bit of um, bit of song and so on and we, what was the most poignant he said that it's unlikely that those words have not they haven't been spoken in that landscape for two hundred two hundred years. Wow! Like that, that, that those words being spoken would resonate throughout the landscape and would awaken the spirits. Wow! You know, and it's like we're back. We're here. We see you. We acknowledge you. Right. We hear you. You know, and and, and welcome. You wow! Know? It was bloody yeah. powerful stuff. And I think there's such a 
you know, because they used to farm. Bruce Pascoe wrote a wonderful book called Dark Emu about the the farming techniques. A lot of lot, lot of people still do and still argue that that's not quite right, but there's lots of evidence to suggest in the early pioneers' diaries that they farmed. Right. You know, fields of yam and yeah, yeah, and and gra- granaries. You know, like oh, really? um, stone granaries full of grain. And they, wow. you know, the first bread makers in the world were the indigenous. Really, Aboriginal, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, made it out of yeah. kangaroo grass and a few others. Wow. Um, fascinating stuff, and it's just it's just such a. I think it's just important. I use that word important that it's integrated and becomes a a real. You know, it's culture. Yeah, it is. It's a local culture. Yeah, you know. They've got so much more culture than us, don't they? Way more. Us yeah. bloody whiteys. Yeah. We're such a mix of all sorts of them, I guess. Well, that doesn't mean we don't have any, but yeah, it's just, I guess we're we're so multicultural that we don't know quite which way to look. Yeah, plus I guess New Zealand and Australia, we haven't, we haven't, Europeans haven't been here that long, you know, like oh, no. quite a short amount of time. Really. We're a couple of thousand years away from being native. Yeah. If that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. Jeff, I'm conscious of the time. We've got another little session for our Patreon members. So we have a Patreon group who pay um, very, very generously $10 a month to um, get access to a monthly webinar um, with with previous guests that we have and um, videos from me on the Patreon app, um, transcripts of the um, interviews, and also um, uh, they get the Q&A that we're doing, oh, yep. uh, that we'll do after this. So yep. if anyone's interested to hear what... Jeff has to say um, and how he answers my my very hard-hitting questions that I've saved to the end. Um, if you want to hear that, just jump on charliearnett.com.au and get yourself a Patreon membership. $10, that's probably two two coffees. No, it's probably like one and a half coffees yeah, nowadays, isn't it? Yeah, it would be now. Yeah, it would be. I was like the other day and I paid $6.50 for a coffee. Nearly fell over. I wasn't even in Double Bay in Sydney or somewhere where that's that's pretty standard. Um, Jeff, I've so enjoyed our time this afternoon. Really appreciate the location we've done it in and, and you sharing your life, your regenerative journey. Uh, and we'll have a little, little little break. Okay. You've got to decide what we're doing for dinner. I, yeah, I'll seek some guidance from my wife. Actually, looking at that weather, I'd rather – I'm thinking maybe stay in, you know, put the fire I don't on. mind. Well, yeah, yeah. Not, my house is your house, literally. Yeah, literally. So, <laughs> so if that's, if that's what you'd yeah. rather do, yeah. I'll get this all cleaned up when we finish this bit and you won't even know this happened. Okay. You could yeah. just say to Justine, oh, no, we didn't do it. We didn't do an interview. We just had a few beers. Yeah. Okay. We had a, okay. we had a sauna. <laughs> there is a spa here. There is, oh, yeah. Before we go, give everyone a really quick rundown of what they can expect if they come here in terms of the accommodation. Um, I want to make sure you got you guys kind of. This is. Um, and I, well, want to, I, I, want, I want to share the experience. Okay, we've got three cottages. This is a modern three bedroom cottage, two ba- two bathrooms. Um, you know, nice open kitchen, uh, spa pool. It's incredible. Uh, then there's two very old cottages. One's a two bedroom. One's a one bedroom. And then there's uh, we haven't looked at it. Yet. One is a tiny home, a little kind of lovers retreat down by uh, down by the lake with a big outside bath and. Um, but there's not a lot of room in there, so you know you got to like each other pretty. pretty <laughs> you only go there if you're in love. Yeah, I think so. Don't yeah. don't, don't go down there for a first date. No, it no, might it may not end well. Yeah. <laughs> Do the beds split? Um, if they did, you'd probably get this much distance between. <laughs> no, it's, a low, it's the best views on the property. If you want views and a outdoor hot. Um, bath, that's the place to go. That's the one. And yeah. where do they find you on the website? Um, just at lakeawaystation.com. Awesome. Yeah. 
Jeff, thanks so much. Um, I will have to speak with Justine another time just to get her side of all of that story. Um, there's a few bits I'm not sure were true. Um, I'll have to get her to verify, but so enjoyed our chat and um, we'll have a break and do some more in a minute. Brilliant. Thank thanks, you, Jeff. Mate. And next week on The Regenerative Journey, I interview Michael Gooden as part of our uh, Highland Beef. Uh, in between episodes, uh, Murray Richardson and I probe Michael Gooden um, on all things regenerative farming, his um, his farming practice, a bit of his history for that in-betweener, uh, and that's next week on The Regenerative Journey. This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.